Hey, my friends, what's happening? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter is an awesome way to find quality candidates for the job that you're trying to fill. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 50-plus job sites, including social networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidate. I don't know why I had to say click. I was reading while I was saying it. Uh, Find candidates in any industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates. It's like they're all running for president or some shit. Watch your qualified job candidates. There we go. Roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. And with ZipRecruiter's premium traffic boost, you can get up to three times more candidates. Huzzah! Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Plus, get 30% off your first traffic boost by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 200,000 businesses. That is a lot, Jamie. That's a lot. Imagine if 200,000 businesses right in front of your face. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan to get 30% off trying it for free and 30% off your first traffic boost. ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan. Ta-da! We're also brought to you by Smart Things. Smart Things, ladies and gentlemen, Smart Things is one of the 10 coolest gadgets of the year by Time Magazine. Smart Things has created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home, and you don't have to be a tech genius to install it and use it. Smart Things instantly turns your normal home into a smart home. Locks. Lights, thermostat, security. With smartthings.com, it's all connected through a single app. It's pretty fucking slick. And um, I just got this. So uh, I'm setting this shit up in my casa right now, young Jamie. And I love the idea of being able to set something and do it all from your smartphone. Like, you, you can turn your lights on. Like, come on, son. From a phone. We're living in the future, Jamie. This is madness. Turn your lights on or off from your phone while you're in bed or on the beach. You can get a push or text notification when unexpected motion is in your home while you're away or asleep. Dun, 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 dun. And now for our listeners, it's even more affordable. You can get 10% off any home security or solution kits when you go to smartthings.com forward slash Rogan. Smartthings.com was named the CES Editor's Choice Award, ladies and gentlemen. CES 2015 Editor's Choice Award. I mean, that is fucking gigantic. The CES is the biggest consumer electronics show in America today. And this motherfucker won the Editor's Choice Award. What does that tell you? You need to get on, is it? Smartthings.com, ladies and gentlemen. 10% off any SmartThings home security solution, so home security or solution kit, and free shipping in the U.S. Go to smartthings.com forward slash Rogan. At smartthings.com forward slash Rogan and save on an awesome product. And last but not least, we're brought to you by onit.com. That is O N N I T, a total human optimization website. If you're like, what is all this honest bullshit about? What, what it's all about is providing people with the best tools that we can offer, the best ones we can find that are available today in 2015 with everything that we know about strength and conditioning equipment, everything we know about nootropics, uh, nutrition for the mind, everything that we know about 
hemp protein powder, everything we know about kettlebells. We just try to sell the best shit possible. And also through the Onnit Academy link and the actual Onnit Academy that exists now in Austin, Texas, an actual physical gym that anyone can sign up to with state-of-the-art strength and conditioning equipment, including they have a um, um, cryo care, uh, cryo health care, one of those cryo tanks, like uh, I uh, have posted on Instagram, Instagram, <laughs> Instagram, uh, these these images of uh, cryo healthcare tanks, these cryo chambers that you go in and stand in 250 degrees below zero for a couple of minutes. They have one of those at Onnit. It's fucking sensational. Uh, all of the products at Onnit, whether it's strength and conditioning equipment, whether it's the supplements, whether it's the foods, it's the best shit that we can find online. The best shit that we can possibly sell through the best distribution method we know. The internet, ladies and gentlemen, including things you're not going to find anywhere else, of course, like our primal bells. The kettlebells that are made out of the great apes. Functional, 3D mapped, beautiful. They will last forever. They're made out of cast iron and they're cool as fuck. The Gorilla, which is 72 pounds, Orangutan, 54 pounds, Chimp, 36 pounds, and the Howler Monkey, 18 pounds. I talk too much. Go to O-N-N-I-T, use the code word ROGAN, and save 10% off any and all supplements. Bam. This guest today is Dr. Chris Ryan. Uh, We've been doing these podcasts with Chris and Duncan and I. We took a little time off, but we're going to try to do some more of them if we can. The uh, the Duncan is out of town. The Duncan is the, in Big Sur. He's uh, he's busy being a baller and uh, being a man of leisure and a, the beautiful human being that he is. But we're going to have uh, everybody back together, bring the band back together, and try to do it on a regular basis. But this was a very enjoyable podcast talking to Chris. He's always filled with information. He's a brilliant guy. He's a really cool and very thoughtful guy. And uh, I always enjoy podcasting with him. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, the author of Sex at Dawn and my friend, Dr. Chris Ryan. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Back from the rain-soaked jungle of the Pacific Northwest where hippies flourish. Chris Ryan, dude, they're out there, man. They are. It's like they're like monkeys in the jungle. They're like bugs in the forest. Yeah. <laughs> Flowers in the garden, yeah. Oh, that too. You could look at it in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're just, it, it's, just, you know, it's a good place for them. It's an interesting place. You're going to be there soon. Yes, this right? weekend. You're this on weekend. your way. Yeah. I'm very excited. I love Portland. I, I fuck with them about being hippie infested, but yeah. better that than fucking psychos, you know? That's true. That's true. It's an interesting place that it's got such a strong culture for such a small city. Yeah. You know what I mean? There are huge cities three times that size where, like, you don't even know you're there, right? Mm-hmm. Based on how people dress, food, you know, attitude, whatever. Portland is so specific and sort of microcultural. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was talking to a friend who grew up there the other day, and I asked him, what's the biggest change from 20 years ago? And it was interesting. He said, uh, not eccentricity. It was really eccentric then. It's the same now. You know, that sort of became the calling card of Portland. He said the big difference is there was no smugness 20 years ago. Oh, now people are smug there? Yeah, Hmm. because I think people who sort of choose that identity Mm. then go to Portland. You know what I mean? Like hippies who are actually kind of Nazis. Yeah, there's a lot of those, right? Yeah, like really judgmental hippies. Like super ultra left-wing people who are really just mean, and they just right. they, they find a target, and the target is a right-wing, right. so they go after them. with Or whomever. Yeah. Or they yeah. often go after each other. Often. You know, it's often. Like, often. Yeah. And so there's like a, a fascist mentality that just happens to have chosen a hippie mm-hmm. you know, outfit off the rack. 
Exactly. I had exactly. an ex-girlfriend who was really into fashion, and, and I remember one time her saying – we lived in San Francisco for a while, and I remember her saying, "Yeah, I want to, I want to go for a hippie look, you know, and I'm going to like buy the the fringe." And I just remember thinking, like, <laughs> that is so antithetical to what a hippie is, you know, <laughs> like to go buy expensive hippie outfit. Isn't that perfect though? That it's America. That's, it's like it's like spraying body odor deodorant, so you'll yeah. smell like a dirty hippie, you know. Well, I saw this commercial, or not a commercial, like a, a website rather online that sells used jeans right they sell yeah. jeans that people wore and they have like i mean they have like stains on them some of them have patches and they were 270 dollars yeah for a used pair of jeans good gig though it's be a, a, a jean wearer yeah or a good gig <laughs> to be selling these jeans you could probably yeah. buy from goodwill for you yeah. know really cheap yeah and uh, i forget the name of the company but their their hook is they're trying to make you look like you know you're worn these man right. I don't care about what I look like man yeah but you're you're buying two hundred seventy dollar used clothes I yeah mean, like it, you're instead of wearing them and turning them into that you're immediately trying to like adopt that persona right the perso- I'm a comfortable pair of jeans yeah look at me with my like when you see like fake rips those fake rips that I people know. have they're crazy like what are you doing you're buying torn clothes yeah and you think it gives you a look ah, i'm down home i'm yeah. you know the knees are just all worn out in these pants man i'm waiting for <laughs> you know it works with clothes i'm waiting for it to work with the body you know because i just turned 53 recently and i'm like when is old and fat going to be in because it's, it's about in, time when genetic engineering kicks in and everybody looks like dr manhattan yeah then like old ugly fat will be Wow. Yeah, Interesting. It's new. Yeah. yeah. It's something different, man. It's Unique. like like a lot of white guys who are into Asian women will go to Asian countries like China, for instance, because there's no white men there or yeah. not as many rather. Yeah. And so they become an oddity. It's like, oh. I've experienced that. I remember that. I can remember the first night. I can remember the minute I experienced that thinking like, what? You know, first everyone's looking at me. Okay. I'm a foreigner whatever. It's weird. But these women are smiling and flirting and what that what's going on? And, and, you know, eventually someone explained to me like, dude, you're white. They love. <laughs> and I've always the one thing about my body that I, I would complain about is my skin. I've never liked my skin. Like all I've got as much uh, melanin as anyone else, but it's all in my teeth. So I've got yellow <laughs> teeth and, and super pale skin, you know. Um, Do but, you get burnt really easy when oh, you go to the sun? Completely. Like what is your background? Ten minutes. Your, your Irish. Ch- Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very white. Yeah. And I'm a redhead, which is like you know one tweak away from albino. Right. You know? well, you're not. Are you redhead? Are you like your I used hair to is be. gone gray? And now, do you yeah. prefer the gray or the red? Well, the you got like kind of cool thing going on. You got a lot of blondish right. sort of accent. Well, that's it. When you mix <laughs> red with gray, you get blonde, right? But right. no, when I was a you know until I was in my thirties or forties, probably um, you know I, I had sort of orange red hair. Whoa, yeah, it was dark orange. It was like copper wire kind of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't bozo. That's very but it was close. But people are prejudiced against that in men. Yeah, like, that's women it's sexy. Yeah, how, what the fuck Men is that? It's de- geeky. How does that happen? Well, maybe because of the the novelty, and also there's a there's a reputation among redheads for being sort of temperamental, and everybody knows a temperamental woman's a lot of fun in bed, right? Hmm. Maybe that's it. And temperamental men are just dangerous drunks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> assholes. Yeah. Irish assholes. That's funny. I man. mean, Raquel Welsh was a redhead, although she was Mexican, so I'm not sure how that happened. Everything I've seen from Raquel Welsh 
I, it was so old I can't remember or was black and white black and white yeah, yeah. she was a redhead like a dark red I like think a, she dyed it yeah but oh. just like auburn reddish kind of what do you think dye was like back then what would they just grind up some leaves and fucking rub them in their hair well like, they probably had um, what's that stuff they use in Pakistan uh, uh, henna oh yeah you know henna goes way back yeah, that's that stuff is strong as shit too, right? People get those fake henna tattoos; they last for days. Yeah, can't even scrub them off. The dudes in Pakistan henna dye their beards, oh, which is interesting. It's that's, a nice look. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, like when they're start, when they start going gray, that's their version of just for men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny, man. Yeah, yeah. Every no one wants to be gray. That's the one thing. Like universally, people are like, oh, that's a fucking tricky one, man. You the, think so? I'm think not it's... happy about my gray hairs. I when just I... grew in a little chin beard here, and it's completely white. And I had one five, six years ago when I was traveling, and it was still red. So really? I don't know what uh, happened between then and now. I got old, man. Oh, so you weren't shaving. You were shaving it completely yeah, before. Yeah, so it was yeah. like a snapshot. I, there was no gradual process. I still have mostly, like, say, like 80% black in my beard, but, like, the sides of my hair, like, where if I had right. any, this is all going white now. Yeah. All this is gray on the sides. So you weird. think the gray is more traumatic than the balding? Because I'm going uh, through both. Both of them are rough. Yeah. Um, the gray is probably less traumatic because I know dudes who are totally gray who dye their hair. And they look fine. They look or, fine. or they look fine with the gray, yeah. right? A yeah, distinguished yeah, yeah. gentleman kind of thing. I know both. Yeah. It just, well, it just represents reality. Represents the finite nature of the body and you're going through a process. You know? But also, like I was talking about how I'm hoping that like old and fat comes in <laughs> now that I'm almost there or or there, depend, arguably. Uh you your your sort of balding experience happened at a really good time historically. I got lucky, sort of, but I fought it for the longest time. I had hair transplants. And yeah. I took Propecia and I put Rogaine in there, and all, which is very ironic. Yeah. When your name is Rogan, you're going bald and you're buying Rogan. Perfect sponsorship, especially when you had to go to the counter. Like now, you could just buy it, but you used yeah. to have to go up to the fucking pharmacist. You used to have a prescription for that shit. And yeah, I've Christ. bought a lot of Rogaine in my day because my ex father-in-law in Spain had me bring it back from the states every time I came to visit. He couldn't get it over there. I think it was like he thought it was stronger or better in some <laughs> way. So. It was like the only thing that kept my relationship with him partly civil. I so wish that I shaved my head way, way, way back in the day when I first started worrying about it. Yeah. It would have been way better because I love being bald. Like I really – I don't. if I could grow hair back now, I would still shave it. Right. It's the easiest thing in the world. I don't right. have to go to – I had a great barber and she was hilarious, a hairstylist. My friend Gabriella, she, she worked on news radio with me. She was my – she cut my hair forever. You yeah. know, But at a certain point in time – she was cutting it. It just looked like dog shit after she was just this, like, th it got thinner and thinner. And then once I quit taking the Propecia, then it was like a serious downhill slide. Oh, really? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Shit was just dying left and right. It was horrible. <laughs> well, I agree with you. I, I think that all young men, like in their mid-20s, should shave their heads. Yeah. it's Just so you don't worry about it. You yeah, know? If you're going bald, for sure, shave your head. I say, people, oh, I don't like to shave my head. Believe yeah. me. Take control. Yeah, it's better than whatever the fuck is going to happen if you don't shave your head. Just, I, just I wanted it. to shave my head. I went, We were in India. I was with my wife, Casilda, in India, in Goa for months. We were in Asia for like over a year. And I thought, this is the perfect time to shave my head. Because if I've got a weird shaped head or I look like a dork or whatever, who gives a fuck? Right? right. Nobody knows me. Um, and I came to her one day. We rented this house on the beach. I was like, hey, cut my hair. I want to shave my head. And she said, oh, please don't do that. Please. I said, why? Why? Well, it's, it's not just because she's used to me looking like a dork, but it was my father had just had a liver transplant. And she said, in India, you shave your head when your father dies. 
Oh. And like, and she's very suspicious, oh, yeah. and she's got all these beliefs. And she's like, you know, that's your, your father's in rocky shape. You don't want to be shaving your head. You know? Yeah, that's different. Yeah, I could see that. Oh, I missed my missed my chance. Yeah, I, I missed my chance when I was on news radio. That's when I got my hair transplant. My first one. I got three of them. When I got my first one, I was on news radio and I was like, God damn, this shit is going, man. I just like was seeing it falling out. And uh, I was like, I'm thinking about shaving my head. And they're like, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm like, my hair is starting to look like shit. <laughs> and uh, they talked me out of it. Well, because it would. It would fuck with because my character. Of your character, right? Yeah, yeah. like yeah. because you'd look like a psycho. I'm like, all right, so I didn't. You know, people get used to whatever the fuck you look like. Right, exactly. Know? Like I have a picture of Joey Diaz um, back when he was like 210 pounds. It's crazy. It's on my wall in my office. I stole it from the comedy store. It was a headshot that he had up, and um, he, I don't even think it was up. I think I stole it from the office. I don't think they had put it up, so I snacked it. Um, but it's um. It's Joey, like, thin, and, like, but if I saw, if he walked in today looking like that, I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? You but sick? I, yeah, but I see him the way he is now. I give yeah. him a big hug, and that's Joey. You know, you, yeah. get, you get used to, you get used to the change. Definitely. You know? And I was thinking about that. I, I turned 53 last week, right? So I'm thinking about time and all that. And um, here in L.A., visiting my parents who are in their 70s, so there's all that. You know, there are a lot of cues for these things. And... um there's this famous poem by uh, Dylan Thomas where he says, rage against the dying of the light. You yeah, know? Yeah. And I often think, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe embrace the darkness. You know, like mm -hmm. the light, you know, like people fight. He lost a fight against pancreatic cancer. Well, right. you know, maybe the, that's not a fight worth waging, you know. Well, I, don't know. I know a guy who's got pancreatic cancer who's fighting it, and they gave him a very short window to live, and he's pushed way past that, and you know, and everybody's completely shocked. But he has this amazing attitude, and he's positive and enjoying life. And I think his point of view is not instead of rage against the dying of the light, enjoy the moment and live your life. That's and, yeah. And I think because yeah. of that, he's actually living longer. Right. There was a guy. His name was Bill Hoyler, uh, who I became friends with from the internet, from my my own message board, and. Uh, he was a, uh, a young kid who got pancreatic cancer, and he lived for years. And uh, we became friends from online. You know, he used to, he would have a he had a screen name. We would call it. Uh, I think his screen name was called Pan Can Fighter or Pan Can like pancreatic cancer fighter. Right. I believe that was his screen name. And um, I would get him tickets to the UFC and get him tickets to a comedy show. And one time he came to visit me in Florida, and. Um, he came to the show. I got him tickets to the show. And then, you know, he told me he was going to go sleep in his car. And I was like, you drove all the way down here. You're going to sleep in your car. He goes, yeah, I just wanted to see the show. So I got him a hotel room. And, you know, nice. I, like this guy's got cancer. You can't yeah. let him sleep in his fucking car. Like right. your immune system is like super important when you have cancer. Yeah. Sleep is super important for the immune system. But he was always so thankful and never weird. And like for a kid, a young kid who was facing this horrible disease yeah. that almost nobody escapes from it's like the percentage of people that survive it's one of the worst very yeah. very bad but his attitude was always like i'm gonna fucking fight this and i'm gonna and he would post these tweets on the uh, messages on the, on the message board like uh three years later i'm still alive motherfucker like that kind of shit and you know he had tubes in his stomach when i saw him once I, we, we saw him eddie bravo and i became friends with this kid we saw him maybe six or seven times over the years and, uh, you know, one time we saw him, his head, he lost all his hair, his eyebrows were, were gone, he had tubes coming out of his stomach because, you know, of some surgery that he had, and he was still alive, and he still had a good attitude. It was amazing what an attitude he had, and I think that that attitude is probably what allowed him to live for so long. 
but he eventually did die recently. And, well, uh, as we all do, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny. I, I saw the, the guy from 60 Minutes who was in a car crash last week. You, yeah. Did you see that? Um, I forget his name. Um, but he's 73. He was 73 years old. And the headline said, um, the, this gentleman whose name I can't remember, lost his life in a car crash. And I thought, you know, when you're 73, you're not losing your life. You've already banked 73 years. Right. You're losing a couple of years. You're losing whatever was left. 11. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Actuarial lucky. tables yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, that's not losing your life. You spent that money. That's right. like, you, you know, somebody <laughs> robs you and they got you're everything. Broke. Well, they didn't get everything. They didn't get what I already spent. You right. Know? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they spent. They robbed your whole life savings. Well, I didn't really save my whole life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've never saved. I've been saving for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, really. Look at this picture of Vince McMahon from the WWE. Wow. He's 69 years old. Seriously. Yeah, this is insane. And that's not shopped. That's... I'm going to, uh, I'll, I'll, should I forward this to you, Jamie? What's that? Okay. He's on the cover of Muscle and Fitness. Tony Hinchcliffe sent this to me because Tony Hinchcliffe is a fucking WWE fanatic and he's in love with Vince McMahon. But... <laughs> Nobody in human history has ever looked like that at 69 yeah. years old. Yeah. Testosterone is a motherfucker. Yeah. So if you want to rage against the dying of the light, uh -huh. that's the way to go. Get all pumped up. Testosterone replacement therapy. Go to a doctor. They bring you to the same levels. You, look at that picture. That's ridiculous. It's up. Oh, sorry. It's behind you. Yeah. He doesn't have that other one on. That's okay. It doesn't have to be on. But it's just ridiculous. Like, who, who the fuck has ever looked like that at 69? Is it good or is it bad? Uh, you know... I don't think it would be too terrible if people could live to be a thousand years if I knew that we had the resources to support it. Because mm. I would think like, man, what kind of amazing philosophy right. and insight would you get from a thousand year old woman who's lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and, you know, and seeing culture shift and change and remembers as much as she could and tells you about life in a way that only a person has lived a thousand years. And we are a, a little blips. If you talk to a guy that lived a hundred years, you're going to be fascinated if he has his faculties. But someone has lived a thousand? My yeah. God. I mean, it would... Holidays it, would be a bitch, though. Yeah. Imagine the great, candles. great, 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 great grandkids she has to buy <laughs> shit for. <laughs> That's true. Imagine the candles on his fucking cake. Exactly. Dude would die blowing them out. Well, isn't it ironic, don't you think? Um, I think that we're going to see a, a great advance in our lifetime of, of lifespans. But the real issue is, do we have the resources for that? Because one of the things that is going on with our world, as everybody knows, is that there's a lot more people today than there's ever been in recorded human history by a giant number. And when you see places like India that are in dire poverty, it's one third the size of the United States. It has three times as many people plus. It's like, wow, I mean, how that you're dealing with a lot of poverty and a lot of suffering. And, you know, maybe it's a perspective issue and maybe what I consider poverty, they consider life. And then if I lived that life, I would be accustomed to it. It mm. would be normalized. Mm -hmm. But I've got to think that most people don't want to sleep on dirt and most people don't want to eat food that's bad or, you know, yeah. struggle to survive in any way. And, and dealing with rampant diseases and that you're dealing with in impoverished nations, you know, when they don't have enough medicine to take care of people. I don't know, it's, but I, if we did have the resources, man, it would be amazing to talk to a thousand-year-old person who knew everything about the, I mean, if you could keep your faculties. How grumpy would they get? <laughs> These <laughs> fucking kids today in their electronic hologram music. Pull your pants up. When I was a kid, we had drums we made out of animal skins. <laughs> we fucking killed those animals. We chopped those trees down. We hollowed them out. We stretched the skins. Yeah. We made the pom-pom. Boom, 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 boom. 
But seriously, I mean, if you think about, you know, just how much things have changed since you and I were kids, yeah. you know, if you're talking to a guy that's 500 years old, it's like, holy shit, man. Well, yeah, the other thing is a thousand years from now, I mean, if we really could live to be a thousand years old, a thousand years from now, people might not be necessary. I mean, we, we might have evolved past this state in yeah. some sort of a gigantic technological leap. I really believe that when you're looking yeah. at the, the iconic image of an alien, you know, the big heads, the big eyes, and no genitals, I think I, we're looking at what holds us back as organisms. And the things that, if you look at our wars and our greed and just all the crazy fucking larceny and crazy shit that people do, it's all attached to the primate body. You know, mm. it's all attached to sex and breeding and greed and guilt and fear and the worry about being mortal. If we can move past that in some genetic engineering leap or if it goes Kurzweil on us and they develop some insane artificial body that you transfer your consciousness into right. that is just way more preferable. You know, you got all the buttons you can push for orgasm, all the buttons you can push for adventure, all those exist inside your head and they can access them at any moment. But you're looking at the world in some crazy 3D, you know, minority report fashion where everything you see, you're interacting with the world in a very different way. You might get a bunch of people to jump ship, and the models might get better, and then the next model might be so pleasurable, so much better than being a human being that it just fucking people just start jumping ship, especially if the ship's human race. Sinking, you know? Yeah, we're fucking yeah. polluting the ocean. Yeah. Guess what? How about you live off photosynthesis? We, we're going to cure the whole thing. All right, you just got bulletproof gym. No, you live off the sun. You, oh, you like, incorporate yeah. algae somehow into the genome or something. Somehow, yeah. in, look, there was a um, a snail that I read about recently, or a slug, that shifts between photosynthesis and actually eating things. And it eats certain algae, and then through eating that algae, can actually absorb life yeah. and exist off right. photosynthesis. And this is a new find. So it's like colonized its food, yeah. and it's still alive. Yeah, yeah, that's... It's, ex it's, it's somehow or another taking this ability from its food. Do you know how sea slugs have sex? No. Oh, this is great. Since you mentioned slugs. I wasn't planning to talk about <laughs> slugs today, Joe, but since you brought it up, uh, sea slugs are so interesting. They're, they're on the bottom of the ocean. They're just sort of wandering around blind, right, on the bottom of the ocean. What are those? Th can they see with those things? I think they're like motion detectors, okay. you know, whatever, antenna. Um, but when two sea slugs – now, sea slugs contain both male and female uh, reproductive organs, right, inside right. their bodies. So they've got sperm uh, and eggs. And when two sea slugs meet each other, they sort of rear up and, and with those horns, these horns come out of their, their heads and they start slamming each other with these horns, like a couple of, you know, mountain goats or something. And eventually one of them will break through the skin of the other with his horn. And at that point, he injects sperm <laughs> into the other. And, he, and so the other becomes female Whoa. because now the eggs have been fertilized and that one's a male. Whoa. So it's like when they, they're like fighting to see who's male and who's female, <laughs> which, you know, may be reminiscent. Wow. <laughs> of that's crazy. Private school or summer camp. <laughs> boy Scouts. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the boy? Religious here? retreats. 
Yeah, man, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. It's amazing when you see all the different varieties of life, when you see all the yeah. different forms that it can take, and then you stop to consider that that's just in our, you know, our Earth's environment. Imagine like what they're going to find if they can chip through Europa and get to those oceans. Mm. It's very possible there's something alive under there that's sure. being fueled from the heat of the volcanic vents. Right. Most likely, nothing. We've never seen anything in the ocean other than like. You know, we see like hermit crabs. They'll use other people's, uh, you know, oh, get as in a the shell. shell. Yeah, we've never seen anything like build a structure other than that. I don't think like nothing, nothing you could consider like look. There's a house. You know, like a beaver. Right. A beaver has a beaver den. You right. know, even it's crude as fuck. But damn, they're building their own little house. Right. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, and we obviously have insects in in the the world above ground that build incredible structures and termites you know? yeah like, oh my god you've seen a cross-section of a termite mound it's insane with the like the vents for keeping think, the temperature leaf cutter ants is that the one where they filled it up with cement uh and they they bring the leaves back and then they have uh, mm -hmm. a fungus that grows on the leaves and that's what they eat yes, yeah that's yes. wild well I mean, termites I, probably do something similar well the too. termite thing i'm thinking of i saw some bbc special recently and i think it was termite mounds in africa and what they do is like where they have all the eggs has to be an exact temperature and humidity wow. and this is in la kalahari desert right which is dry and the temperature changes a lot night to day and so they build these things and they've got this chamber and then below the chamber are cooling fins that that hang down perfectly spaced and the air circulates through them so that it keeps the temperature exactly the same all the time wow it's like how does i mean there are things in evolution that are not understood right yeah. like there are things where it's like well there's no um uh, gradual way to get from point a to point b here mm -hmm. how, how do termites know to do that right you know that how do you encode that in dna that doesn't seem possible based on what we know of dna especially since it's not an isolated incidence right this is happening it's all species, over the termite world yeah, yeah it's crazy yeah. and they don't communicate in a way that we understand right so yeah it's it's very mysterious and i think there's a you know you're talking about like quantum leaps and thinking and stuff i feel like in a strange way, and I'm even hesitant to say this publicly because of it's a, an example of what I'm talking about. Like, it's really hard to talk about the the areas where Darwinian uh, notions of evolution don't quite make it mm -hmm. because you immediately get lumped in with the religious lunatics. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's or sort the of woo woo people, or yeah. So it's sort of shut down. An important conversation, you yeah. know, much like the Nazis. I mean, the Nazis were doing all this interesting science that you can't talk about, mm -hmm. you know, or you can't talk about eugenics. Right, right. Like, right. well, that's a legitimate thing to talk about. Sure. Everything you know? is legitimate to talk about, including when yeah. you're talking about Nazi history. Right. Why is that legitimate to talk about? But eugenics as a concept, not saying as an actual practice. Right. You know, I don't think you should take people's lives because they're dumber than you. No, I don't think but you, you, could, genetically you could encourage some people not to reproduce. Like, how dare you? Like people who have a genetic uh, propensity to a certain illness. Like, hey, you know, maybe you should adopt, and here's a massive tax credit mm -hmm. if you do, right? I agree with that, but man, I don't think you should be able to tell anybody that they can or can't breed. I, I think education is, is important with all aspects of breeding, but we all know that people make terrible decisions when it comes to breeding. Because they want to get that nut, son. <laughs> and, and then they're like, oh, no, I met a person. All right, now i got to deal with it. You know yeah. I mean? I don't think we should take that away from people just because they have diseases or force them to get an abortion or if, you know, also one valid point that people who have illnesses 
say is um, I don't want anyone else to have the illness that I have, but I'm alive and I'm, I'm okay. And I have, you know, cerebral palsy and I have, you know, whatever I have, you know, and I can still enjoy life. It might not be perfect, but you're telling me that this experience, my experience in life, because I have cerebral palsy or because I have something else is not valid. And I'm saying mm. that's wrong. I'm hampered. Right. I'm hindered. I certainly can't move the way a regular person moves. Right. However, my experience is my experience, and I can make the most of it, and I enjoy it. And I'm not necessarily trying to give a child this, sure. but I'm not trying to invalidate. You know, this is but, an argument for that. I think. Right. But okay. But let's look at the counter argument, right? Because the assumption there is you're, as you said, you're invalidating my experience. But looked at from another way, what are we comparing that experience to? Right. We're we're experience, We're comparing it to. Nothing. We're not. We're not comparing it to you know. You should die. You should be. You know. What we're saying. Nothing. Right now, how do you compare it to nothing? A kid who isn't born isn't suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that the the assumption. I, I've got a cousin. This really smart little kid. He's like five or something. And the other day, he was talking about how he uh, before he was born, he was saying that all fetuses should have. Um, uh, iPads, but but no password, right? Because because they wouldn't understand. How that. old is he? It's like five, I think. And because it's boring, you know, boring and, being a fetus, right? And I was like, well, or my my aunt was talking to him, and and uh, he said, uh, she said, well, where were you when you were a fetus? He said, uh, I was uh, sleepy dead. And he's like sleepy dead. He, yeah, it's not like dead when you die. It's it's dead before you're born, and you're kind of sleepy, so it's sleepy dead. Whoa. And like, okay, yeah, this is a kind of a genius kid. What if that kid actually knows something? What if he remembers some shit that we forgot? I'll tell you. I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but I remembered when I was a kid. I remembered. You remembered what? I remembered the the feeling of where I came from before Whoa. I was born. What? And what happened was, and this is a weird thing. I was just talking to to Casilda about this recently. Um, I remembered it as a general. Uh, how can I say this? Like what I remember is as I got older as a kid, I remember thinking I'm losing this memory. I'm losing contact with something I know. And as my consciousness was getting more sort of aware as a, a, as a person, right. uh, I realized that that was a really valuable thing that I was losing. And so as I was like 12, 13, 14, I was like, I have to remember this. I I knew I wouldn't remember it as a memory, so I was creating like a, a record of it that I would remember, if that makes any sense yeah. to you. You know what I mean? Like I know, you know, it's like people who have, um, I forget what it's called, where they don't recognize faces, like uh, mm-hmm. that uh, Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, has that, and he describes it in one of his books. And he's like, they've got this face blindness. So what they'll do is if they're having a conversation with you, and they, they're going to go to the bathroom and they know they're going to come back. They'll be like, OK, the guy with the blue shirt and the thing and the tattoos is Joe, you know, just to create a record in his head. And then he'll go to the bathroom. So when he comes back, he'll remember you're Joe. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting neurological thing. I would like to see that guy draw a picture of a face. Yeah, I wonder if they. What I wonder how say? that works. Do you know Oliver Sacks? He would be an amazing guest. No, for I don't you. know. I don't I'd love know to if, have him on, though. 
Uh, but you know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. heard of him. I've heard of him actually describe that. I forget what show I was listening to, but he was actually describing that issue. Yeah. Of not, not knowing what people's faces necessarily look like. Yeah. I, I, I just, it's, it's hard to like imagine that. It is, right. Because it's something that's so automatic to us. Yeah. He also wrote a book about hallucinogens, hallucinations, which was very interesting because it was the first... This came out maybe five years ago, and it was it struck me as the first like mainstream uh, sort of non-apologetic discussion of the use of hallucinogens by a very mainstream doctor who's written all these bestsellers. And he talks about when he lived in Topanga in the 60s. And he took some acid. Of course and- he did. You have to get in there. <laughs> exactly. To go to the farmer's to get market, in the they gate. gave you acid. <laughs> That place is ridiculous. Yeah. I was looking at a house there once, and these fucking hippies talked me out of even looking any further. They they were like, uh, like the house had a tennis court behind it. They're like, if you buy the house, you're going to let the community use the tennis court, right? I go, what? That's right under my bed. Like, get the fuck out of here. No, yeah. I'm not going to let. Okay, well, you care you fucking people are too much. Yeah. You imagine all these dirty hippies showing up Sunday morning. You're trying to sleep in. You hear, boop, 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 boop. Hey, man, that was in bounds. <laughs> no, it wasn't, man. You should share the score. You know, fuck you. That's good. You sound like the Californians of it. the Saturday Night Live. Dude. That's them, dude. I know. It's so true. I want to go back to what you were saying, though, like your, your memory of... Um, of be, n- before you were born, you know, I was listening to this uh, Radio Lab podcast. I know that I've said that about a million times. If you're playing the the podcast drinking game, it's time to have a shot. Drink up, because I, I listen to that podcast all the time. But they were talking about memories and how poor people's memories truly are, and how many people like believe that they have an idea in their head that's carved in stone. This is what happened. But if you, if you look at the, the actual events, the provable actual events in comparison to their idea, what happened, right. oftentimes they're way off. Yeah. You know, a lot of eyewitness see reports that. are terrible. Horrible, yeah. Yeah. A lot, often people see that when uh, they go back to where they grew up, you know, and you go back to your home and like your house looks smaller. Yeah. And the, everything looks different. It's just like, wow. It's like, it's like somebody made a replica of where you grew up, but did a shitty job because they didn't have all the data. Do you ever feel betrayed when you had that experience? No, no, no. I, I the opposite for me. When I went back to where I grew up, it was amazing. I took my uh, my wife and my kids, and we walked through the neighborhood. There it wasn't even a neighborhood. I lived across the street from the Charles River. This is this big park like area, and uh, I would go fishing um, down the river. There was like this pond. It was I would catch bass at, and I took them on these walks that I used to take through the woods. Mm. And I was like, "This is a crazy spot to grow up." I didn't realize how weird it was. Yeah. So I grew up near this place called Echo Bridge, and Echo Bridge is in the place called Newton Upper Falls, and it's, I had a waterfall across the street from my house, and I never never realized like how cool this was. Like right. until I took the kids there and walked around, I was like, "Wow." This is a wild place to be. Like all the places where I used to hang out with my friends and just, you know. It's do, nice. And it wasn't all built shit. up. It was still, there's oh, still, still some like empty that. space. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, cool. it's the Hemlock Gorge Reservation. That's mm. like the, the area. I think it's preserved. That sounds all, nice. I, I always imagine yeah. you like inner city because I remember you talking about rough neighborhoods and stuff. I lived in Newton from the time I was 14 to the time I was 17. Yeah. Or uh, to the time I was, uh, well, that was high school, you know, 14 to 17 and then like a year and a half, two years after that, I stayed there. But before that, I lived in a place called Jamaica Plain. Right. Jamaica that's, Plain was rough. That's we right. only lived there for 
about a year and a half, maybe two years at the most, but I went to high school or um, grammar school in this, uh, I think it was Curly, I think that was the name of the grammar school, but it was bad, man. It was real bad. It was Jamaica Plain has become more gentrified now, but when I lived there in 1979, 1980, I guess it was, somewhere around then, I think my first year of high school was 81, it was, uh, it was really bad. There was a lot of like bad shit going down. There were 17-year-old kids that were in the seventh grade. You know, they would like never graduated and like you'd be in, you know, I was like a little kid and I was going to class and there was these fucking full grown adults that are in my class. And, you know, these guys and girls making out in the back of the class it was all these like inner city kids. Like they were so I'd come from Florida where I lived before that in a yeah. college community in Gainesville, Florida. And we moved to like the only place in Boston that my parents could afford. And mm-hmm. it was this Jamaica Plain place. And they worked really hard to get us out of there and moved us to Newton. And Newton was like way more urban, way more relaxed. But Jamaica Plain was fucking sketchy. It was sketchy. Yeah. There's a lot of crime. Like there's breaking and enterings in our in our neighborhood all the time. You know, like we got a dog just to to bark to let us know if someone's trying to get into the house. It was very weird. It was a weird place to live. And then Newton was a total different place. That's cool. That's something you and I have in common. Moving as kids, I moved a lot as a kid. I Almost went to all my three friends. high schools. It's real common. Yeah, with people that are interesting for whatever reason. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, my. I have a younger sister, and she and I sort of dealt with it in diametrically opposed ways. Like she um, r- had developed a real need to be part of the community. So as soon as we'd moved, to, we lived in Jacksonville, for example. As soon as we were in Jacksonville, she developed the local accent within a week. <laughs> you know, I never developed any accent. I sort of I became the pedantic, arrogant asshole who doesn't need friends. You know, that's how I dealt with it. Right. Like, you know, okay. I, I mean, I, I got used to eating alone in the lunchroom, you know, like reading a book. Like, I got my book. I'll ignore the rest of you fuckers. I mean, I made friends, but the the point was that I didn't, like, I wasn't reaching out, you know. I was trying to be. My, and then that worked great in the, you know, the rest of my life, traveling all the time, living overseas, all that. I don't have a home. And you're, you're like this too, right? You move enough. It's like, well, okay, I lived here for a couple of years. I lived here for a couple of years. But when people say, don't you miss your home, all your friends, the people you grew up with? I, I don't know the people I grew up with. You know, there was yeah. stages. I'm still friends with uh, a couple guys from high school. Really? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, one guy from high school, actually. I have yeah. two two buddies from high school that we talk one that I'm pretty close with. Uh, I saw him last when I was in Boston. And, um, you know, we've known each other since we were like 14. So it's it's weird, you know, like yeah. seeing us now. He has grown kids. We went to dinner with him and his kids. His, his daughter's like in her 20s. I'm like, this is crazy, man. You, gotta, <laughs> you know, I've known his wife forever, too. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting to to see. Uh, he, he grew up in that neighborhood. He lived there. And, you know, we became friends when I moved into the neighborhood. But um, – Almost all my friends, like Joey, Ari, like all these guys moved all over the place. You know, Duncan, um, you know, uh, Brian Callen's the worst. Like, not the worst, I shouldn't say, uh, but the most experienced. Because he lived in Saudi Arabia. His his, His family was involved in international finance. And so he lived in all these crazy Middle Eastern countries. He lived in Afghanistan, I believe. That's a whole different level. Oh, he lived everywhere, man. Yeah. And he's one of the most interesting people I know because of that. It's just like he... There's pros and cons, I think. Definitely. 
there's like a, a definitely like a more calming confidence of growing up in a neighborhood where you know all the people and you yeah but there's also like a limiting aspect to that too especially if it goes wrong yeah you know like if it you depends get, on the neighborhood right yeah, yeah. yeah sure yeah. the bad neighborhood or if you get labeled as like a person in the neighborhood where the right. kids ostracize or they get mad at you for something and, right yeah, it's like you redefine yourself when you move to new places. That's like the new girl. Oh, she's the new girl. Where's she from? She's from Portland. Oh, does she smell like feet? You know, like you see her. She's, <laughs> she's wearing a granny there. dress. She's got a patchouli on her thing, dude. She's got I like patchouli. Dra- oh, good for I you. I got a sign. <laughs> You're the guy. You're the fucking I'm problem. I'm one guy. <laughs> I'm the one guy. I mean, everyone always like, I like patchouli. I like prune juice. Mm. I mean, I know it's a joke, but it's like it tastes good. It's good I, for your body, too. I guess. I yeah. mean, it, it makes you shit or not shit. I don't even know. I know it affects shit somehow but i mean i just like the flavor and mm-hmm. patchouli smells good to me i it's not the worst smell yeah okay i like incense that's a very hippie thing people get mm-hmm. angry at you, you like the sm- you don't like the smell of incense uh not if they're oh. any anything but nag champa i like the nag champa some stuff laying around here somewhere you know i don't I like one right there Tell me if this one smells good to you I, I'll put it <laughs> i'm sure it'll be fine yeah hey shout out to duncan I, I feel Are we shouting out white people shouting I, well, out. That's well, you mentioned Duncan, and and you know when I I, I tweeted that I was going to be on the show, everyone's like, oh, you you and Joe and Duncan, like oh yeah, Duncan couldn't make it. He's yeah. a big sir, living the time of his life. And he is that he, fucker. He likes it up there. It's, oh, he loves it up good. there. He's trying to talk me into buying a house, dude. I'll watch your house when you're not there. <laughs> what a favor he'd yeah. be doing you. Yeah, oh, he would be. Yeah. I would do that too. I would totally trust him. It's pretty cool up there. Oh, I, I mean, it. that's. It's a very unusual place because you yeah. can't really support a large population. It's like you right. can only live you can't so drive far in. And in. Out. Yeah. You're kind of butted up against a mountain. Yeah. The water's right there. It's like this is all you got. You, you know? spend time at Esalen ever talking Never. about hippies? No. I did. Um, I was invited to do a workshop there. How's that smell? Is that okay? I don't even smell it yet. You don't I think smell it, that? It's going that way. Damn, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You got something wrong with your nose, son. You should smell the fuck out of that. Oh, there it is. Yeah. How's that? It's nice. It's nice. You sure? Don't lie to me, man. No, I'll put it right it's out. all right. I hardly notice it. I tell you. I mean, okay. I, I don't know. It must be the Coke. I, oh, sorry. Ah, oh, did dare I say you. that out loud? How dare you? Joking. That's a bad drug. Don't that's you understand? A, I, that's a drug. I had access. I mean, I, you're, you're in this position all the time, I'm sure. But, you know, having access to like the best of the best of something. I knew a guy in college who was the son of an oil minister from a country I won't name just to keep me out of trouble. He had a private jet. He used to fly to Colombia. He had a diplomatic bag so he could bring anything into the country. Oh, my God. He'd bring this shit into the country and he was like in this frat and I knew someone who was in the frat and I was never a frat boy at all. But they would invite me and like these like yellow rocks of coke you know and then like <laughs> and it was the i mean i went to this dumbass college where everybody was rich so the drug scene there was off the charts and like i've done the best coke there is right i mean right. I, I know the guy who invented mdma i you know it's like i've got i had these really good connections for drugs and coke sucks <laughs> the best coke in the world <laughs> Is shit. The I best? don't get it. Wow. I mean, my in my sense is that it it affects a certain personality structure in a really pleasant way, and I don't have that structure. So for me, hallucinogens are like boom. That's pushing my my button, right? Right. Coke it just made me fucking nervous and drink too much. Well, you're a self deprecating guy, and you joke around about a lot, and you, you're also introspective. And I think that one of the things that people don't like about people that are coked up is that 
they want to talk about themselves. They want to tell you how fucking badass they are. They want to brag. They want to. They want yeah. to talk about like making money. We're gonna buy this forest. We're gonna fucking. You know, like you know. What I mean, like Mike Young used to always talk about how uh, people in, on Coke always want to start a business with you. <laughs> it's, and it's really kind of true. It's like they always have these Enthusiasm. crazy. Yeah, they have these crazy yeah. grand plans, yeah. and it's just. I, I've never been interested in it. I, I got lucky and I, I ducked it. Yeah. When I was a kid, I've told this story a hundred times, but I had a, a friend, my friend that I'm still friends with in high school. Right. His cousin used to sell it and he, his life went down the toilet and I watched him wither away, lost like a shitload of weight, mm. became weird. You know, just always on Coke. And when he wasn't, yeah. wasn't on Coke, he was just exhausted. You know, it's just like, Jesus, that looks like a, like so, knowing someone who got bit by a vampire. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Like you got you got the bug, they got you. They yeah, got you. it's know? like you're taking all the energy from part of your life and concentrating it in the few hours after you do the coke. And like, well, what are you going to do with all that energy except irritate people? But I knew a girl, and she was a great girl. She wasn't a mean person. She wasn't nasty, materialistic. She was beautiful. She was really nice and sweet and kind. But fuck, she loved coke. Mm. God damn. And she would feel bad about it. She would I fucking love it. I love doing coke. And I'm like, really? Like what? You know, I was not curious enough to want to do it. But listening to her, you know, she knew it was bad. Knew she shouldn't do it. Didn't want to do it anymore. But she'd tell you, God damn, what I'm doing. I love doing coke. In my experience, the people who tend to get really hooked on coke are people who have um, issues. With, uh, they feel bad about themselves. They, mm. they feel they've got a lack of self-esteem. They, they feel like they, they're not good enough. They're not whatever. There's shame and all that because uh, the Coke takes that away for a while. That totally makes sense in this case because this woman, her mother was like really overbearing and her mother was like super alpha successful. Right. Her mother was a single mom and was like, like no man's going to fucking run me. And so she was a lawyer and she, was, she ran successful business. Mm. She had a law firm and she was like super like intense with her daughter about achievement, about pursuing things, about, you know, don't eat the wrong foods and, you know, eat, you know, and she was like really like overbearing and gave right. her a hard time about her weight. Like you're too right. fat. You're never going to be a model. And like, oh. and so I guess the Coke was like, oh, free. You know, right. I don't have to think about I give her like maybe she had a deficit created by her mom's constant, you know, just yeah. never letting her just be herself. Yeah. You ever you know who Gabor Mate is? No. He's uh, Gabor Mate. Right? Yeah. I never, didn't know the name. I've only seen it written. I've yeah. Never, uh... He's he's a cool guy. I and mean, if you ever want to have him on the show, let me know. He's he's a friend of mine. He, he's a very interesting guy. He's a, a doctor who works with addicts. He's been working with addicts in Vancouver in like the slum part of Vancouver for a long time. A lot of like real down and out people. Um, and he also is very interested in alternative approaches to addiction. And, uh, you know, he's uh, written about ayahuasca as a way of dealing with addiction, treating addicts and all that. Um, but anyway, he uh, his theory is that all addiction is due to trauma. It's not it has nothing to do with the substance or the activity. It's. That's just how it manifests, right? But it's all about psychological trauma. It's all trying to alleviate suffering of some point, hmm. of some kind. And um, it, it's interesting. His research uh, sort of uh, meshes very well with uh, this experiment that was done also in British Columbia. I can't remember. Williamson, I think, was the, the scientist's name. You know those famous studies where they give rats, like, uh, they've got a water bottle, it's just water, and then another one that's got Coke in it, mm -hmm. and the rats will just keep doing the Coke, and they'll forget to eat, and then they, you know, like, die, like, these people you're talking about lost all this weight and just, like, completely focused. 
this guy looked at that. He he was a professor, a scientist. He looked at that and he's like, okay, well, that that's the sort of main study that everybody cites that shows that Coke is addictive and it's Coke that causes the problem and it's the substance and molecular problems. But what if we took those rats, uh, same kind of rats, but instead of just being in a cage where there's nothing to do, put them in a really interesting environment where there are lots of other options. There are lots of other rats, there are tubes to go through and things to climb and things to hide under and lots of stimulation, right? And then let's try it. They try it. What happens? The rats do the coke once or twice and then walk away from it. Never go back. Right. So there's an argument to be made that a strong argument that it's not about substances. It's like I was saying, it's about the way this substance intersects with whatever your particular suffering is. Right. So these rats in a cage are obviously suffering because they're not in a natural environment. They're in a fucking cage. There's nothing to do except like get high. So they get high. That's a very good point that I never considered. That is a very, very good point. It's called Rat Park. If anyone wants to Google it, just Google Rat Park because that's what he called this, you know, like sort of enclosure that he made for the rats. Imagine being a rat being stuck in a fucking fluorescent lighting room and the fucking metal cage and the little water bottle you got to suck on, big tooth. I mean, ugh. The fucking life they live is dog shit. Yeah, you're in a prison cell. Yeah, well, I imagine you got you got a prison, a guy in solitary confinement, right? And you're offering him to get high. Of course, he's going to get high. And you're being surrounded by giants <laughs> everywhere you go. There's these enormous creatures who could easily reach in and just snuff your life out yeah, by squeezing. It's true. It's ridiculous. And, like, and by nature, you're terrified, right? Because yeah, you're a prey animal. Yeah. You're, you know. Yeah, you, you should be running from everything, and all of yeah. a sudden, you can't run. You ever. can't hide, right? You're Nowhere in a cage, hide. and they just reach in and grab you, yeah. and they fucking give you coke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes you even more paranoid. What a fucking <laughs> shitty life. God damn, PETA. You yeah. might have a point. <laughs> I, I interviewed this guy recently <laughs> talking about animal stuff. He uh, he was doing his PhD in uh, University of Pennsylvania. And he, he was working in psychology, but there were chimps involved in his research. And so they like they would come into these cages, but they had this big area outside back behind the cages, right? Where So like at night, they would go hang out and there were trees and stuff and whatever. And so this is in the, I guess, 60s or 70s. And uh, so he would hang out until everybody went home and he was alone. And then he'd sneak back into the area where the chimps were, where he wasn't allowed. Nobody was allowed, right? Like walking around with chimps. But he was like, fuck it if they kill me. I don't think they'll kill me. No problem. Whoa. So he and he was a hippie, right? Um, actually, he's the guy who, who now owns this chain of paleo restaurants in Portland. <laughs> R- really cool guy, Richard. Um Figures. Yeah. <laughs> he opened the first mountain bike shop in the country. He's a very good businessman. Then he opened, like, he went to Portland because he wanted to um, be in a place where you could get all your supplies for a restaurant, all the food, within a 100-mile radius. And he studied all over the country, and he said, Portland's the place. Everything can be grown within 100 miles. He sort of was ahead of the mountain biking craze. Then he was ahead of the sort of farm-to-table thing. Mm. And he opened a chain called um, Laughing Planet, which there were like 15 or 20 of these uh, uh, like vegetarian burrito shops in Portland. Sold that because uh, he had quintuple bypass surgery Whoa. and he thought he was going to die. Sold that, bought this beautiful farm where he grows stuff now. It's just amazing. Quintuple bypass surgery and he's a vegan mountain biker? He was a, a vegetarian, not vegan, but he was a vegetarian. And so he, that's what he said. He's like, I work out. I'm eating vegetarian for 20 years. What the fuck? 
And he started reading about, like, wait a minute, this idea of low fat is bullshit. You oh, know? he was, wasn't taking healthy fats. Right. He didn't know, oh. you know, so now he shifted to paleo mm. and now he's opened like, you know, he's got this expanding business of paleo restaurants. Anyway, what am I talking? Oh, so he would go back with these chimps and he told this hilarious story where he's with this chimp and he'd like go back there and, and you know, smoke a joint at the end of the day and the chimps are wandering <laughs> around. And one day this chimp comes over and sits oh. down next to him and he's smoking a joint and the chimp reaches out no and he, hands, he does not get this chimp high he hands the joint to the chimp no the he chimp hits not. it and gives it back to him oh my god <laughs> that that would be the greatest video ever on youtube uh, <laughs> a dude get uh, there's one of a chimp fucking a frog have you ever seen oh, that oh i have seen that that's kind of sad yeah not for the chimp <laughs> but <laughs> but one of a, a chimp smoking a joint with a dude especially a hippie right. that would be the ultimate don't bogart don't bogart it man and if you did bogart it what are you going to do you know you better like, just give the chimp the joint shut the fuck up exactly. before it rips your arms off exactly and a high, what's a high <laughs> chimp like you know probably pretty mellow it's like a it's like a paranoid rat like how do you know it's well that's another thing we were talking about um, rats being in cages I, I i got super high once and I wrote a uh, a piece way back uh, a long time ago on my blog before uh, my 2009 special before I started podcasting I used to write a lot and put it up in blog form and one of the things I wrote about is it, it's called animal prison and mm. it became like the foundation for a lot of jokes that I went to use in some of my specials but it was about getting high I got really high once and I went to the zoo and mm. I was super depressed yeah not you know me personally in my personal life but being at the zoo right. stoned made me like re like especially edibles you know i had eaten a pot something or another cookie or something like that and i was like really fucked up about this i'm like this is just it's not fair it's it doesn't it's like yeah. it's cruel it's cruel and it's cruel in a way we're insensitive to and the, the joke was like hey man you know i watched the chimps they were playing with the tire swinging around look like they're having a good time and i'm like yeah well you can go to prison and you'll see dudes playing basketball it doesn't mean it's awesome. Right. You know, like people yeah. do what they have to do and they're in prison to have fun, but yeah. they don't want to be there. Right. And that's the same thing with these animals that didn't like the idea that somehow or another they're being saved. I guess we're supposed to accept that they're doing conservation work for sure. And that some of these animals can only exist in captivity in this day and age or or, or at least we have to have some of them in captivity to ensure their survival. Yeah. Because humans are pushing in on their area. Where they live, but fuck, man, that's especially with intelligent animals. That's depressing as shit. Yeah, I've got a friend. I just did a podcast with him the other day. He's uh, sort of been hired by the whole marine mammal uh, consortium to try to help them deal with their image problem from <laughs> blackfish and blah blah blah. Right. So we were talking about this, and he's been working a lot in this place in Florida where the dolphins are used for a therapeutic. You know, with like um, vets with PTSD and, right. and kids who are autistic and stuff. And the dolphins seem to have a real sensitivity and there's an interaction. And a lot of them are born in captivity. If you let them loose, they'd be dead within hours. You know, they don't know how to survive and stuff. Um, but anyway, we we're talking about this. And, you know, I said, like, OK, you know, what are you going to do about the I understand he has good arguments about the dolphins and the smaller animals. But, like, what are you going to do about the orcas, man? You know, how, how do you fix that? And he's like, he said, there's no way to fix that. Like, they just should not be there. Because you can't build an enclosure that is even arguably big enough and interesting enough 
for them and they live, they're social. So you can't just have one. You got to have like 15 of them. You know, they're very community based animals. So like, isn't the, it possible that they could take an area in a bay, like a very large area and take all the world's captive orcas and transport them to this large bay, mm. like take a large area in a part of the world that we don't go, but it's habitable, right. inhabitable for them. And then, you know, fence something off underwater spend a lot of money to fix this right. issue and then slowly but surely reintroduce them to the wild F- give them a steady source of food like provide them with food and then provide them with food that's you have to catch yeah like give them more and more food that's like you're going to let a tuna right. go or habituate whatever the fuck them, it is yeah, yeah habituate them and yeah. make it a project i don't buy the idea that it's impossible to take them and let them live in the wild you can take a 40 year old man and teach him how to go forage through the, the woods i mean look at survivor man that fucking guy he taught himself how to do that shit yeah. he, he can exist for m- months at a time yeah. out there in the wilderness and there's a lot of people that do that they have survival skills like that's yeah. what we call it we used to call Hunting and gathering is now survival skills. It's not just existing as a person, foraging for food like people used to do for fucking untold thousands of years. I think you could teach orcas, but it would have to take a long time. It would cost a lot of money, but you owe that to the fucking orcas, man. I agree. I agree. But, you know, we're not, we're not. Yeah, we get into yeah. what we owe to other, you know, beings. Sure, it's a never ending. I mean, ever, you ever I, read I Peter think... Singer? You know him? No. He wrote Animal Liberation, which sort of started the whole animal rights frenzy in the seventies, whenever oh. it was. Really interesting philosopher teaches at Princeton now, I think. Um, and he made a really interesting ar- argument about using primates in drug testing. And because, you know, the argument there is, well, they're close to humans, so their responses to pharmaceuticals and things is is as close as we're going to get for our own testing. And uh, what he said, he's one of these guys who just thinks really clearly wherever it goes and he doesn't give a shit. And so his argument was, um, okay, a a chimpanzee has the intelligence and sort of uh, demonstrable awareness of a three or four year old kid. So they're they're beings, they're thinking, they're experiencing, they've got emotions, they've got relationships. There's no question, right? They're not fish. They're not, you know. Um, and every year, thousands of babies are born with no brain. With, I forget the technical, the medical term for it, but they just, their brain never developed in the fetus and they're born. And, thousands, really? Yeah, maybe it's hundreds, I don't know, but a lot. Um, and his point was... These babies are all going to die. They're born. They put them on these machines, keep them going. They're feeding tubes and whatever. Um, But they're never going to survive. They feel no pain because they have no brains. So why aren't we testing pharmaceuticals on them? Wow. Because they're human. That's some dark shit. (laughs) Well, it is. You're right. But it makes sense. It certainly makes sense logically. It's the the emotional fact. Instead, we're torturing, you know, these living, thinking, you know, aware beings. Yeah. Um, the idea being, of course, I mean, the argument against that is that if it saves one human being, who cares about the chimp? That's that's the, the idea. You know, if it that's saves your life, right. you know, if your wife is saved, you're, you're the person you love more than anyone else in this world is saved because they tortured some chimp. It's, it's not a beautiful thing. 
You know, it's 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 very dark, but you would be yeah. happy that that chimp gave up his life. Right. But I think that's why we have governments, right, mm-hmm. to think beyond that personal level. Because, you know, that's what war is, right? War it's is hard, innocent though. people are dying right. so that, you know, and, and, you know, there is no good choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, a yeah. thousand innocent people die there or a hundred thousand innocent people die here. Well... A government exists to kill those thousand innocent people. Essentially, That's, isn't that the real problem? Like, what makes someone uniquely qualified to be the person that makes a very difficult choice? Yeah, and really, no one deserves to be the person who decides this right. group of people dies, so this group of people lives, or that this yeah. monkey gets a, a you know a, a battery cable attached to his dick. Right. That's why or, psychopaths do so well because they're not worried about the consequences. Because they're they're yeah. able to make those decisions. Is it psycho or sociopaths? I've never really understood the difference between the two, to be honest with you. I think sociopaths don't feel empathy and psychopaths like are prone to more violent behavior. I yeah. think, if that makes any sense. Like, I think sociopaths, from what has been explained to me, and I might be butchering this, probably should look. But uh, I think the idea being that they're not feeling empathy like the right. rest of us are. Like if, so, if they, by their actions, they get ahead but somebody else suffers, it doesn't right. bother them. Right. Whereas for you, you would do something that would hurt someone's feelings and you'd be like, man, I just can't fucking sleep. This is so freaking me out. You know, right. They don't have that, right. that, that sense of empathy. I have a friend who wrote a book called The Psychopath Test. Oh, I've read that. Yeah, John Ronson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I started reading it, I should say. I think I bailed on it. I yeah. got bored. <laughs> yeah, well, you get the idea pretty quickly. I'm right? all ADD on that shit like that, man. I can. I'm really good with like a documentary and stuff like that. But uh-huh. like getting deep into the dry issues of psychopaths and sociopaths. And what's his take on it? Uh, you know, essentially that uh, psychopaths f- are very uh, prominent in fields like Wall Street. Mm. Uh, military, you know, high, mm. they do really well in areas where you have to make decisions that, you know, hurt people and you don't give a shit. Here's an article in Psychology Today that explains it in a way many forensic psychologists, psychiatrists, and criminologists use the terms sociopathy and psychopathy interchangeably. Uh, leading experts disagree on whether there are meaningful differences between the two conditions. Yeah. Uh, I contend that there are clear and significant distinctions. Dur, 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 dur. Okay. Sociopaths and psychopaths share. This is what they share. A disregard for the laws and social norms, a disregard for the rights of others, a failure to feel remorse or guilt, a tendency to display violent behavior. Uh, in addition to their commonalities, sociopaths and psychopaths also have their own unique behavioral characteristics as well. Sociopaths tend to be nervous and easily agitated. They are volatile and prone to emotional outbursts, including fits of rage. Blah, blah, Coke blah. Heads. Psychopaths, yeah. Psychopaths, on the other hand, are unable to form emotional attachments or feel real empathy with others, although they often have disarming or even charming personalities. Interesting. Mm. That's what I would think of as sociopaths. Psychopaths are very manipulative and can easily gain people's trust. They learn to mimic emotions. Now, I've met, I've met people that do that, despite their inability to actually feel them and will appeal normal to unsuspecting people. I, I've seen that. I've seen that where I've had conversations with people and I realize that they're like mimicking emotions like, yeah. oh, yeah, man, it's horrible that that happened to him. Like, oh, yeah. well, you don't care at all. Like yeah. you're feeling like no, you know, there's a there's like certain 
feelings that people have where you feel you, you, you see it in them that they feel remorse or they yeah. feel sad or they feel empathy. And then there's other people that are like faking that where it's like they're doing bad acting on a soap Especially opera. Especially in L.A., dude. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I was on a TV show here two weeks ago or something, and it struck me how the sort of there are concentric circles of bullshit that get more intense the closer you get to the cameras. <laughs> You know, so there's like you check into the hotel and they're like, hey, Dr. Ryan, I said, kind of light, but friendly, but they don't give a fuck. Right. And then you got the driver who's like, hey, is everything good? Can I help you with that, sir? Right. You know, and then you get the assistant producer who greets you at the door. Oh, mm. we're so thrilled you're here, Dr. Ryan. You know, it's just and then you're actually on stage in front of the cameras and the, the shit is just like up to your fucking neck. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like all the fake emotions. And, what kind of a show was it? Well, I'm legally uh, can't talk about. It. No, I can't name it, but yeah. it was like a like a talk show, you know, kind okay. of like where I was talking about monogamy and you know, hey, uh, you know, and the the like the segment before me went long. It, it was about dirty underwear, and <laughs> you know, so I'm like, that's <laughs> important, dude. <laughs> yeah. That's important to discuss. Yeah. Uh, are there issues? Is there bacteria? Can people die? Yeah. What about yeah. vaccinations? They protect you against dirty underwear. And I'm not saying it's a. Pre- I don't. Even, I've never seen the show, so I don't know if it's a good show or a bad show. But it's just, and I've I've experienced this in lots of shows, not this show, all right, but lots of shows where like your TV, particularly. And mm-hmm. you, you know, why am I talking to you about TV? But in my experience, at least the way I interact with TV, it's just such bullshit. Yeah, you know? it can be. It certainly can be. But there's some shows that you do that aren't bullshit. Like they're like the Jimmy Kimmel show, for instance. You talk to Jimmy Kimmel, he's yeah. like totally there. He seems like a real guy. He's a real yeah. guy. He's totally he often, there. I, I often wonder about. I, I was talking to this buddy that doing the dolphin stuff. His he dated a woman who was on a rebound from George Clooney. Talk about a tough gig, right? Damn, like you're sorry. the rebound Good from luck. George Clooney. I would take that over the Rock. <laughs> I'll take George Clooney all day. I did, All day. I, I dated a woman <laughs> who who told me I was even better than Fabio in bed. Uh, you should never know that a chick <laughs> fucked Fabio. You're taking Fabio's sloppy seconds? Good Lord. I know. Good Lord. Well, she didn't tell me till it was too late to, to change course, but <laughs> it's one of the most dubious compliments I've ever received. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> even better than Fabio. So J- J- Jimmy Kimmel was dating a girl who was on the rebound from George Clooney? No, not Jimmy Kimmel. My buddy, oh, Chris. your buddy was. But okay. anyway, that got us talking about Jimmy about Kimmel. famous people and okay. who seem cool, uh-huh. like George Clooney. To me, George right. Clooney seems like if you hung out with him, he would actually be a cool guy. Yeah, I would imagine he'd be pretty cool. Yeah. And so, like, how hard is that? Uh, for a guy like that, who's probably a thousand times more famous than, like, my level of fame. Yeah. He's probably, like, legitimately, like, a thousand times more famous than me. That's pretty intense fame. He can't go anywhere. Yeah. I mean, George Clooney shows up, like helicopters will start circling the restaurant that he's at. And people will just jump out of buses with cameras right. and try to touch him. And, and it relates to what we were just talking about, like that fake emotion thing, mm-hmm. right? How much true input is he getting from human beings? Well, he goes to other countries. That's one of the things that I think benefits yeah. you for a guy like that. I think he's got like a fucking villa in France. France. Notice how I said France yeah. because I'm very really cultured. Done, yeah. I didn't say France. Okay, I'm not like that. He uh, he's got he's got mad cash. That's cool because it insulates him from a lot of the bullshit. But well, yeah, but it also attracts the bullshit. Well, my, I was right? going to say my buddy is friends with Johnny Depp, 
and um, his also in France, and he spent some time with Johnny Depp in uh, England, uh. and he said it was the most ridiculous scene you've ever seen in your life. The guy can't go anywhere. Everywhere he goes, there's people with earpieces in and suits, and they follow him everywhere. They're like they're peripheral, and you try to go outside. He was like going outside to have a cigarette, and they swarm on him. We get you a ride somewhere. Do you need something? Like you're always uh, catered to. Yeah. And so he lives in this weird insulated world where he like runs from restaurant to restaurant and has chefs come over his house and cook. He can't go to stores everywhere he goes he's being swarmed upon and for him uh apparently it happened uh after the pirates of the caribbean movies that like took things to this critical nuclear place where it's at right now where he's just like he's a story he's an, an object of attention yeah. everywhere he goes it's got to be really hard to keep your shit together when you're like that because yeah your Could, version of reality is so fucked yeah i mean you're not getting the sort of feedback that you need just to like know what's real yeah you know yeah. Uh, how do you it's it's interesting the character that put him over you know into that world of strangeness was based on uh keith richards right yeah who yeah. I, yesterday i was talking to my friend tal who um He's an Italian prince, talking about European. Damn. He was married to Olivia Wilde for seven years, you know. So he's sort of like he's like in this world, uh, strange world. And uh, he was talking. His father was this crazy Italian prince who hung out with Fellini and Brigitte Bardot and Salvador Dali, and you know he sort of started the Dolce Vita in Italy in the fifties and Damn. squandered this huge family fortune. Like in his lifetime on women and boats and parties and all this shit, you know. I love him. Yeah, really interesting cat. <laughs> anyway, Tao is a great uh, flamenco guitarist. And we were talking about, like, how do you get in? You know, how, when did you start playing guitar? And he said, well, when I was 13, um, the Rolling Stones came to, like, Rome or wherever they were playing. And my dad is an old friend of Keith Richards, and he took me to the hotel where the stones were staying and Keith had like a whole floor to himself. Right. And we went in and there were all these people and all this scene. And actually Keith Richards father was there. He mentioned. And, um, and my dad mentioned to Keith, like, Hey, Tal's uh, learning guitar. And Keith had a flamenco guitar there and he picked it up and he did a few like riffs and he said to him, if you want to learn to play guitar, learn flamenco. Because if you can play flamenco, you can play anything. Wow. And Tal now is a fucking great flamenco guitarist. And he's like, man, if Keith Richards like, tells you what to do, like, you know, that's what you do. You know, and he fucking went with it. It's great. That makes sense because that flamenco is very fast finger movements. Yeah. And you, like you would have to develop some incredible coordination of your fingers. Yeah. Like doing yeah. a Stones riff after that is oh, yeah. easy. Yeah. yeah, it's. Uh, I, I've always loved music, but have never had any inclination to learn an instrument. Yeah, I, I love it. I love Do you listening regret that? To nope. Uh, there's not enough time. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I have enough forms of expression that I'm uh, mm. enjoying. I just, I think it would be cool as fuck, man. Yeah. You, know, you watch like a Jimi Hendrix solo, and you go, "Good lord!" Can you imagine if you could just just the feeling of yeah. being in it that deeply, mm -hmm. the flow? You know, yeah. it's just. Yeah. That's what I regret. You know, I, I never had the discipline. I took electric guitar lessons for two weeks and quit. And I took piano for a week and quit. And, you know, I was just too much of a fuck off as a kid. <laughs> I could uh, never get over the hump to where it started being enjoyable. Yeah, you, you know? need to be obsessed to, to get really good at anything, whether it's the drums or you know the guitar yeah. or playing chess. I mean, it's all the same thing, really. It's like you need to just get obsessed at that particular discipline. 
you know, whatever it is that it takes to, to get really good at it, a, a big part of what makes someone really good at anything is like this crazy obsession. If you don't have that obsession, you'll just drift in and out from one thing to the other until you find the thing that you really are obsessed with. Do you think the uh, – now, obsession – is defined, you know, in the psychological terms as a pathology, mm. right? Obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and you know, this is a very subversive kind of thought, but it's like in our society, and this relates back to the psychopaths who, who attain great success, are, I mean, are most really successful people uh, responding to some deep trauma? Mm. You know what I mean? Like they say comedians... You know, there's some need for approval and, you know, make people laugh, make people love you, you know, because whatever your family structure, I don't know as many comedians as you do, but, you know, you always hear that, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, because I needed the attention I, in, in actors, like they need people looking at them. They need to be on stage. They're like drinking that up because there's some need. It nourishes them on some level. Right. So I wonder, like. Is there, you know, like I'm thinking about people who say like, hey, I learned to play guitar so I could get laid, you know, because the girls were, I guess I didn't, if I didn't think of it that way. So like if you Nobody had a told me I would get laid. Well, maybe if you and your friends got together and you were like, man, we're having a hard time getting laid. Okay, here's the <laughs> Let's form a band. We're going to make a band. Yeah. I think you probably wouldn't be as good as if you guys were like, man, can you imagine? Look, the Stones were our age when they got together. Let's yeah. just fucking do this, guys. You know, if you like really had this desire to produce something that people loved. Yeah. And you know, that's what you kind of have to do. You have to, I think, to get to be a Keith Richards, you have this. You have to have this desire to produce something that people are gonna love. Because, like, when you listen to his guitar riffs, you know, or any great guitarist, Stevie Ray Vaughan, anyone, I mean, they have to have this deep desire to connect with the just the correct sounds that's mm. coming out of their mind, their yeah. imagination, their their skill, their interpretation of the moment. You know, like that's why people like. Like when someone does a guitar solo, the idea being that this guy's just feeling it, you know, it's not yeah. the exact same solo every time. Yeah. Every time they're doing it, like, you know, if a guy just, just starts riffing and everybody starts cheering and going along with it, you want to see like what's what's in that guy right at that moment yeah. and it expresses itself through all the discipline and all the years that he's practiced guitar and then yeah. the, the finger coordination that it's able to achieve. And, and you know, you, there's some shit that's like you could tell they're just kind of... They're just going fast, right. you know. They're just going fast. Shredders. Yeah, there's yeah. people that shred, and it's really cool, and it's really yeah. impressive. And then there's like some Stevie Ray Vaughan shit. There's some Stevie Ray Vaughan where you like feel like him crying through the guitar. Yeah, like there's like there's like this emotion that's attached to it, and then yeah. people connect to. And when you see like Stevie Ray Vaughan's version of Little Wing, yeah, you know, you see a great guitarist inhabiting and loving another great guitarist mm -hmm. you know there's something really beautiful about that fuck yeah dude fuck yeah his his version of voodoo child is the only version i accept other than hendrix right obviously i'm a huge hendrix fan yeah i mean that's why i named this the joe rogan experience to rip off hendrix. oh really yeah, yeah huge right always from the time i was a little kid i mean he just he has a special quality to him like that song voodoo child to me like that just the the opening, yeah, it's coming. Where the fuck did that come? Who yeah. who did that before him? Yeah, I mean, the, compare music 
before Hendrix and after Hendrix. It's like, I really believe that, like, especially Voodoo Child, there's something about that beginning riff. Like, when he really gets into it, it's like, God, he was on some new place. He was yeah. in some new dimension when he was... And we string the guitar. Yeah, like, yeah. fuck that. I'm not yeah. learning that. I'm doing it my way. That's it, He's just, like, so unconcerned with what came before, in a yeah. way. You know, it's... Drugs. Yeah. He was on drugs. Well, that that's what I was going to say. And, and honestly, the first time, it's special drugs, not coke. Oh, yeah. Right? No, he was on all sorts of Acid, drugs. generally, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, I, there it is. There it is. Hit, hit that. Crank that shit up. Listen to this. What you really have to think about is, is like, this is the late 1960s. When this guy comes out with this. Now, if you just go 10 years before that, you're dealing with, like, Buddy Holly. Yeah. And, which is great music, but this is just some next-level shit. Like, listen to this part. This is one dude, by the way. And the distortion. Yeah. That's my... I have a few all-time favorite songs. I don't have, like, an all-time favorite song. But I listen to that motherfucker when I'm in my car on the way to the gym. I'll time it for like the yeah. last five minutes before I get to the gym is Voodoo Child. Because it's just, just fucking blasted. Put my phone on airplane mode. Fuck you. <laughs> and hear this? Cranked. Yeah. Always high. That's just yeah. It just touches like your DNA. You feel that guy's expression yeah. right through the sound. I, mean, he, I, I get that with the... Do you ever listen to Danny California, Red no. Hot Chili Peppers? That, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. There's a guitar. There's, yeah. a, there's a thing that like the whole song builds to this fucking wild guitar lead at, near the end. And yeah. like if I'm working out or running or something, I always have that on my playlist because I just... There's like energy comes out of the ether, you know? It's amazing. Yeah, they had a cover of Higher Ground that was one of the few uh, covers that I actually enjoyed mm. as much as the original, just like Stevie Ray Vaughan's version of right. uh, Voodoo Child. There's some covers that are better. I, that, I really love that genre of music, mm -hmm. you know, where a cover like gets the essence of the song in a way that the original performer may have missed. Mm. Like there are a few, a few examples, I mean, uh, all along the watchtower, you know, I think yes. Hendrix does that better than Dylan. Than Dylan. And yeah. Dylan actually said that as well. You know? Yeah. It's just so different. His yeah. version is a different song. I mean, it's just so, it's so different. And you know, here's one that people don't talk, Suspicious Minds. Dwight Yoakam did a cover of Suspicious Elvis, Minds. Elvis, right. Yeah. Oh, it's better than Elvis. Yeah. People get mad. Fine Young Fuck Cannibals. You, white People, it's, uh, the Fine Young yeah. Cannibals did a version of oh, they it, did a great, which isn't bad. Yeah, they did a great version too. But it's a funny song, "Suspicious Minds." It too, is, you know, because yeah. it's Elvis saying, "Oh, come on, baby, yeah. you, you know I wouldn't <laughs> lie to you. <laughs> Who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes?" Right? Especially come in on. context of Elvis's exactly. life. Exactly, <laughs> you're a ghost, yeah. dude. Come on, baby. It's like JFK saying, "Hey, I'm a one woman man." Yeah, sure you are, dude. Well, not only that, Elvis was probably on so many pills he didn't know if he was monogamous. Oh, when, no when he idea. was the drug czar. Oh, he yeah. Was Drifting in and out of consciousness all day long. I mean, he was poor guy. Talk that, about trauma leading to great fame, right? Yeah, I in mean, a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a da damaged soul, you know, seeking approval from the world. Well, I often wonder if what we're seeing when we see great, like great resonating forms of expression, whether it's art or whether it's uh, comedy or you know any music, 
I always wonder if what we're looking at is a mathematical equation. If we're looking at like a, a yin and a yang, an ebb and a pull, and that the ebb, you know, whatever it was that created this great deficit responds, the body, the mind, the soul, the spirit responds with this incredible work of art to sort of make up for all the trauma that it experienced when it was young, mm. which is why it, it's it's really tough to find someone who had this really ultra privileged life, who was accepted and loved and nurtured in every way, who becomes this really fascinating great artist. Right. Like what you usually find is these people that are in pain and torn yeah. up and, and exactly. It, yeah. And I, I I often wonder if we're looking at it in a cultural context and we sort of like, oh, that guy's an asshole or his life sucked or she was abused or he was neglected. And we're, we're, we're looking at it in terms of like these, um, these definitions that we've already categorized in our mind. But in fact, what it really is, is like math. Is that we're it looking, all evens out. Yeah. That we're right. looking at a minus and a positive. Right. We're looking at a Jimi Hendrix, this young black man in this incredibly racist world yeah. who comes along like right at the moment of this psychedelic acceptance where the whole world, especially young people, are turning on in a way that they never have before. The Beatles come along. They do the White Album. People are freaking out. Clapton. Pink you know, Floyd. Layla. Pink Floyd. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, this dude comes along who's dressed like a fucking Indian. He's got a headband on, <laughs> and he's playing music from outer space. Chewing gum. Yeah. I mean, he's to- <laughs> you know, Phil Hartman, uh, yeah. rest his soul, who's uh, a, a good friend from News Radio, and he was uh, he grew up. Um, when he was young, rather, uh, he lived in Hollywood and he worked as like a stagehand when Jimi Hendrix played the whiskey. Hmm. And so he was right there with Jimi Hendrix holding the speaker because sometimes the speakers would fall off the stage. Like they were on the edge of the stage and you had to be there in case something happened. So he was there when Hendrix first burst on the scene. So he's as close to Hendrix as you are to me. Right. Talk about and, a front row seat, right? And he played guitar. Phil was a oh, Phil, played Phil did everything. Uh-huh. He could do. He was a, a true genius. Yeah. I mean, he really could do anything, and he had an incredible work ethic. That guy, like we we joke around about it. We had this uh, thing we did at the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame. He got a star earlier this year, and Stephen Root and Candy Alexander and I were were joking around about how Phil had these notes. Like he would have uh, his script would be he would have tabs for each scene and they, like these different color tabs for every scene that he was in and everything would be highlighted and he would have notes and stickums and everything was like super organized and we were always like can I borrow your script you know like <laughs> nobody could find their fucking script but Phil had his shit in a binder he would take his thing he would punch holes in them stick them in a binder you know I mean wow. he, he was super duper organized and anal about that kind of shit but one of his greatest moments you know. When we were friends, somewhere along the line, he started smoking weed, like all the time. This is before I actually smoked weed. And um, he did it because he had a lot of problems. There's a lot of marital issues, obviously, that led to his wife killing him. But he enjoyed, like after work was done, not while he was there, but after work was done, he enjoyed getting high. He loved getting high and going on a boat. And uh, Mm. he had a boat, and he would take his boat out, and he would just love being high, sailing. And he was uh, telling me one time we were hanging out in his room. It was after after filming, and he was high. And he was telling me that story about him working at this club and holding the speakers for Hendrix. And to this day, it's like one of my favorite memories of him. You know, because it's just I could see him as this is young guy. It's like he was so fascinated by everything. He's the only guy that I've ever met that I went to a strip club with, and it didn't feel creepy. Because he he <laughs> sat down. He was uh, he sat down. I could say this now because he's dead. 
couldn't if he was alive I'd probably not tell you this story yeah. but he used to love to go to this place called Bob's Classy Lady <laughs> and it was uh, in the valley that's great and Phil took me there um, and uh, he um, he would sit by the stage and the girls would come out and dance and you'd give them money and he was like a genuine childlike enthusiasm for their bodies yeah you know they would be like moving in front of him be like wow you're beautiful oh you're beautiful and he was high as fuck just high as fuck and he was watching these girls dance and stick their genitals in his face, and he just was loving it. He was loving it in a way that wasn't creepy. Yeah. Like, it was weird. It's like he had this almost like innocence about the way he was appreciating their bodies that I didn't feel weird being near him while this was happening. Because it was just you, me and him. Could you feel it as well? Or were you... I was too insecure. Yeah. Yeah, I was too, uh, for whatever reason, there was too many preset ideas about yeah. bodies. And I, it also, I was like, at the time, I was, I was 26 or 27, 20, maybe 28 at the most. And I was pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. You know, I was just a different person. Was just, I was still operating on the momentum of my youth and, and right. chaos. And I couldn't even believe I was hanging out with Phil Hartman right. at yeah. a strip club. Like to me, like seven years before that I had been fighting, you know, so it was like so recent. It's like my competition days. So flavored, like who I was. Cause like, you know, you're talking about the word obsessed, what it means. I, if it is a sickness, the sickness meaning that you can get good at something because of that sickness. I was 100% sick when I was a kid. I was sick as fuck. Mm. I was a psychotic in that way, you know, yeah. not in a way where I didn't care about other people's feelings, but just maybe psychotic's not the word now that we've researched it. Maybe it's the word is just just singular in my purpose and vision on, on earth. I just wanted to do that and mm. only that. Monomania. And, yeah. And so it was hard for me to get out of that headset for a long time. It was, I was, I would drift back into that headset and try to fight it off and try to like assimilate and be normal. But mm. I, I felt like I, like almost like a drug addict who had stopped doing coke or heroin or meth or something like that. I had like gone into this world where there was no more fight or flight. There was no more right. terrifying bouts of competition followed by preparation, followed by more competition. Now all of a sudden I'm hanging out with Phil Hartman at a strip club. Did performance feel that way at all? Like, you know, you got a taping on Friday leading up to it. You're sort of nervous. You're preparing, you know, to some extent. Definitely not a TV show. TV shows, especially news radio, was one of the easiest jobs I've ever had in my life yeah. in terms of the actual performance of it. I mean, you would be a little nervous before, make sure you knew your lines, make sure you get it right. But the cast was so fucking good mm. that, like, you were working with these people that were so funny. All you had to do was just do your thing. Yeah. Like, if I, it was me in a scene with Andy Dick. All I had to do was just go, Andy, what are you talking about, man? What are you talking about? And then he would do his wackiness, and then I would do whatever I right. had to say. And the, the hard part was not laughing, you know? It was remembering your lines first and then not job. laughing. That what was amazing. Job. But to be acting, What about stand-up? That's a little different because you're creating it. You know, in news radio, they allowed us a lot of room for ad-libbing. But even if you do create it, you're interacting with someone else, and it's, you know, you're, you're pretending some things are happening. And it either works or it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. You, you get together. You take a five-minute break. The writers all would, you know, Paul and Josh and all these guys would all huddle together, and we'd try to come up with another line. You know, so it's like everyone was working together on this thing. So it was, in a sense, way easier than stand-up. Yeah. Because stand-up, like, alone. you're on your own, bitch. <clears throat> you know, if you're out there bombing, especially pe people paid money to see it, it's fucking, you know, you, you better come correct. You better have some shit to say. So yeah. 
stand up more so, but still never as terrifying as the the, the sure. in between bouts between competition. Yeah. It was terrifying. You ever was there ever any sort of possibility of you being on Saturday Night Live? I never wanted to act at all. I didn't. You're I didn't not a sketch that. No, no, I don't want to do that. So how how did it happen? How I mean, you don't have to talk about it. If this is <sighs> super. I've, this ta- before, I've definitely but. have. It's super simple. I just got a development deal. I did MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour. I got a development deal. They offered me a lot of money. Uh-huh. Next thing you know, I was on a Disney show of all things <laughs> for Fox. Two hilarious things. Wow. Disney show for Fox it was called Hardball. Um, when that was over, I was totally ready to quit show business. You're doing a voice like, or, or you're... No, I was a character. Oh, okay. I played a baseball player, uh-huh. Frank Valente. And uh, it was a terrible show. It started off really good. The guys who created it were writers from The Simpsons, mm. uh, Jeff Martin and Kevin Curran. They were writers from The Simpsons. They wrote for Married with Children. They were brilliant, brilliant guys. Right. But they were soft-spoken, you know, writers, intellectuals. They got steamrolled. They got steamrolled. Yeah. They got steamrolled by hacks. Yeah. The, the, the people who came in, you know, Fox didn't think they were strong enough to run a show, so they fucked up their pilot. They fucked up all, all the episodes, and they, they tanked a great idea. Yeah. You know, they uh, they were baseball fans and they wanted to make a hilarious sitcom about baseball akin to Married with Children for Baseball. Right. That was their idea. And um, I hated it. I, I hated I didn't hate them. And I loved I loved being in the pilot. Jim Brewer was actually in the pilot with me. Um, Jim played. Uh, it was a one time role for him. And um, it was just a bad scene. It was just not fun. I didn't enjoy working with actors. I thought some of them became friends. But a bunch of them were like unbelievably self-centered and weird, and just so you got no training. No, or you none. never did theater in Boston. None. Zero, or no yeah. desire either, which is like infuriating to them that all of a sudden I was in their turf. Yeah, you know, right. Like, who's of this, who's who this, guy? this guy? And I played the baseball star. I was the the guy who was the the star of the team. I, so it was based on your comedy. No. Not at all. Oh, no. the the MTV thing wasn't a no. The, the, oh. my comedy like got me to the MTV thing, right? But the 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 sitcom they had already written it. I just they just cast me. They I met just, them, yeah, and they wow. said you could be that guy. And so boom, all of a sudden I'm in Hollywood, and I'm they're putting makeup on me. I'm Is like, that when oh, you moved out Christ. here? Um, I did the pilot first, uh, so I came out here to visit. I got one of those Oakwood apartments, right. you know, on uh, in Burbank <laughs> that everybody uh, automatically goes to. They have these rented, furnished apartments. They yeah. have cable. It's beautiful. You just move right in. Yeah. And sleep in some bed that some dude before he's been farting and jerking off in. <laughs> and um, I did that, and then um, then it became it got picked up, and then I got an apartment. Uh-huh. And I signed a lease because I figured, oh, this is going to stay. I had the Oakwood for like a couple of weeks, and I go, oh, this show's doing well, and they thought it was going to get picked up, and then it got canceled. Uh-huh. So then uh, I got news radio, same thing. It was just uh, audition. Went in for an audition. There's a cattle call. It's like a hundred dudes. Really? Yeah, I met them. Went in, did an audition. Came back, did a second audition. Bam, I'm on a show. That's amazing. Sitting there at the table read with Phil Hartman, Dave Foley. So all told, being on news radio, I had even thought about ever acting for less than a year. And I, this was on my second TV show. That's fucking insane. It's totally insane. And the second show I ever auditioned for, by the way. Yeah. I'd only auditioned for two shows ever, and I was on both of them. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> and, and so, you know. Actress, so to what do you attribute this? Lucky as fuck. That for sure. Lucky as fuck. And the ability to perform under pressure. Yeah. One of the things about sitcoms, about auditioning for them, it's so unnatural. You're in this room. There's a table. There's these people that you don't know. And you're supposed to pretend that, you know, we're on a tropical island and we're trying to find where the first aid cap- cabin is. You know, you, it's, it's fake. Yeah. Like, and a lot of times people are like, oh, my God, my life depends on this. My bill's. And some people have never had to perform under pressure before. 
But being a stand-up helps that tremendously because mm. you're, you're accustomed to being nervous. And then fighting helps that tremendously because ah. you're accustomed to being nervous. So those two things, you know, I, I, I performed under pressure more than the average person, even though I didn't have a lot of acting experience. Interesting. Yeah. That, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. I just, I mean, I'm interested in all this. I just watched that SNL special the other night. Yeah. A lot of Phil Hartman. He was and, amazing. And man. a lot of uh, audition tapes as well. He's one of the reasons why I never wanted to do it, though. His his depiction of working in Silent Live was not good. No. <laughs> a he, lot of people hated he it. He yeah. hated it. Well, Phil is a nice fucking guy. Mm. He was a nice fucking guy. He was and that's really a shark nice. tank. It's a, it's a very ultra-competitive, mean-spirited place. Mm. And Phil had the remnants of that almost like as a defensive shell when he first started working on news radio. Like he would say like things that like were really uncharacteristic of him later. And it was really, and he, we, we actually talked about it. And he, I don't want to name any names, but he was talking about some mean people that he worked with on the show. Chevy that evolved, Chase. No, he, I don't know if he, I don't believe he <laughs> He's got that him. reputation. He as, does. Yeah. A lot of people that come from that environment do because yeah. I think it's really hostile and they're all competing to get their stuff in the air. Right. And there's a lot of backstabbing, you know, there's people like doing favors for writers and trying to get their stuff in. And there's a lot of there's a lot of greatness that comes from that too i mean saturday live if you look at the overall body of work and you just cherry pick greatness my god i mean you have this incredible bouquet of john belushi and phil hartman and adam sandler and chris rock i mean you have greatness eddie Eddie motherfucking murphy who was genius on that show him playing buckwheat my god (laughs) i mean it was amazing it was it was a but I never had a desire to do that. I don't want to compete with a bunch of people. I don't want to be yeah. in a hostile environment. I've always, believe it or not, it doesn't make sense because I, I did martial arts my whole life. I was trying to avoid hostility. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to argue. I don't want any conflict. I'm yeah. at, I don't want to compete. Yeah. Like, the beautiful thing about stand-up comedy is you're creating it yourself. You go up there, you do it. You, you're the right. You don't have to argue with people about it. If they don't like it, they're not going to laugh, and then you're fucked. You got to restructure it and figure it out yeah. yourself. You know? That's how I feel about writing books. I mean, sometimes I miss like an idealized team kind of environment because mm. I know how wonderful that can be. But the reality is that generally when you work with people, you don't necessarily like each other. And it's a pain in the ass because of all the weird ego shit. And yeah. so I kind of like that I can at least for a while make a living sitting in a room alone. You know, it's. It's got its ups and its downs, of course. There's but. also a positive aspect from the reader's point of view that if I read a Chris Ryan book, I know I'm getting Chris Ryan's thoughts. They're right. coming unadulterated from your mind to your typewriter, yeah. your your keyboard, rather. You know? Yeah, and that's something I'm conscious of. You know, I, I read this. I don't know. Maybe it was that book you recommended to me, the the War, War of, of Art. Art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but somewhere I read um, someone said always write posthumously. Ooh. You know, write as if you're dead because you will be and the book will still be there. So, like, let go, you know, say Mm. what's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's way better than like if you're like a Beverly Hills housewife, you're going to write some shit that's only based on, you know, like what's going to sell. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you know what I mean. mean? Like they'll create these, you know, things like, okay, how is this going to work the best? I I don't mean to single them out, but I mean just like there's some people that write some books where it's pretty obvious as they're writing the book, they're kind of bullshitting who they are and what they're projecting. Yeah, this will connect with that part of the Mm -hmm. audience, but I don't want to offend that part, so I got to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, you're talking earlier about that whole ebb and flow idea, the mathematical sort of it all Mm -hmm. equals out at the end. I've thought about that a lot, not so much in, in terms of individuals, uh, though it makes sense, but I've thought about that a lot in terms of uh, 
historical moments, historical periods. You know, like Vietnam, the the late 60s, right? Like 65 to 71. That's when, you know, more Americans were dying in Vietnam, right, than any other period earlier than that. And before they ramped up, it wasn't as many. So you've got all this conflict, all these riots in the street. You've got Selma and Martin Luther King and all this agitation. And at the same time, you've got Jimi Hendrix, you've got the Beatles, you've got all this music we're talking about, amazing literature coming out of that, fashion, craziness, tie-dyes and afros. And, you know, it's like... When the shit hits the fan, it's really interesting, mm. you know, and, and interesting people rise to the top. Whereas when things are stable, the interesting people just, you know, they, they don't get anywhere because it's too the, – the structures are rigid and controlling, you know. Well, sometimes there's a need for reform and change that – makes these interesting things blossom almost out of pressure, mm-hmm. almost out of like two rocks pushing together and they create a, yeah. know, there's, there's this effect that happens because people are pushed into a certain way. And, and in that sense, there's always been the argument that we need a certain amount of evil to appreciate love, to appreciate happiness and, and good times. We almost need a certain amount, like people who, this is uh, in certainly no way supporting war, but people who look at war... Uh, like people in this country, especially as just something, and they don't they don't think about it deeply. They don't think about it in a in a way where they they comprehend the loss of lives and the the sadness and the sorrow. They just look at it as those are our heroes. They got to do what they got to do over there, so we could do what we do over here. All right, woo! And it's like this really surface way of looking at this thing, but it's it's almost because they are not experiencing the suffering. It's almost because they're not experiencing the sorrow that they don't have this, this, this appreciate, like the appreciation that you have of not being at war shouldn't be that someone's over there fighting war so that you don't have to have war. It should be that you, you, you realize that people can get along, that people can love each other. We could be friendly. We could be nice. You can go to a, a farmer's market and everybody's saying hi, you know, you could, you know, that's a bad example, yeah. but you know, we can interact with each other in a, in a positive way yeah. or we could fight over an oil hole right. Right. You know, we could shoot each other and kill babies and fucking gun down innocents in untold right. numbers over an oil hole. I mean, it's almost like having the, no interaction with it, having and, and also having this sort of archetypal patriotism that everyone subscribes to. That's sort of like there's a very cookie cutter vibration that yeah. certain types of patriot type people give off where it's like it's really like this is where we're going to operate we're going to operate in this very small box where the soldiers are heroes and there's no there's no doubt they're doing what they do over there so we could do what we do over here and they'll repeat that mantra over and over again without any consideration whatsoever for what it means as human beings that we're, you're 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 dealing with groups of human beings fighting other groups of human beings for some reason that has not really been clearly defined to <laughs> right. me that most of the people fighting have no clue what yeah. it is yeah no, most none of us do very few of us do yeah. and i think that for for someone who for someone who goes over there and, and experiences it it's probably got to be really weird to see that sort of cookie cutter version of it um, being expressed by people like uh, I have quite a few friends that have uh, been overseas and been involved in the war and you, you talk to them and man they have sorrow they have some horrible stories they have some shit they don't like to remember they have some you know some really difficult things on their you know this Brian Williams thing that happened yeah. in the news yeah. one of the things that I took from it especially hard was not that Brian Williams was not telling the truth because I think he's a 
fucking Hollywood guy. He's just a showbiz guy. He's you know? an actor. He's exactly. an actor. Yeah. He's an actor that reads the prompter instead yeah. of a script. Right. And he acts like a standard actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they have the tie and they they talk like most of them do. I made a mistake. You know, like come on, man, you're fucking lying. You lied. You lied about some shit that went down. But what would hit hit me harder was the pilot that was involved. Because there was a pilot involved that gave his version of the story and did some interviews, and he said that um, they were in a helicopter, and the helicopter took small arms fire, and that the helicopter in front of them was the one that got hit with the RPG, and it wasn't the one that Brian Williams was in. Um, but he was telling his story about this, and then people started questioning, no, you weren't in the helicopter with Brian Williams. This guy was in the helicopter with Brian Williams. And so the guy says, man, you know what? I don't really completely remember, but what I, uh, it's hard for me to go over this. I had put it aside, but now that I'm being forced to remember it, the nightmares are coming back and I'm having a really hard time sleeping. Oh, really? And he was talking about it. He said, I don't really want to talk about it anymore. I, you know, I said what I had to say. Is, is, this guy is certainly not lying. He certainly did serve. He certainly did get shot at. He certainly did see some horrific things. There's no doubt about that. No one questions that. They're just questioning these, uh, these his version of events versus a couple other people have their version of the events, and it's just so much trauma involved. In this guy's experiences over there that he's like I had tried my best to forget about it. this was what I can remember when yeah. people ask me about my experience with Brian Williams this is what happened and he gave a very logical account of it the reason why we were an hour late he said is because we had a drop off a payload we dropped off our payload and then we went to the, it took us about an hour and then we went to the site where the guys had landed with and then we all had huddled down together in a snow, uh, sandstorm and it, right. it was an, an incredibly traumatic event for all involved so it, I'm not giving Brian Williams a free pass because he remembered this in a fucked up way because I do think he bullshitted it. I think he added a bunch of shit to his version of it and put himself in more danger because he didn't think that anybody would put the pieces together. And when it came out, look, his story as itself would have been just as good. If he said the helicopter in front of us got hit with an RPG, yeah. we had a, it doesn't make you better because you almost died. You definitely almost died anyway. Yeah. Like his version, the real version, he almost died. The real version, he still was in a convoy that got shot at. His helicopter didn't. They were all forced to land and endure a sandstorm for two days. I mean, that version is amazing. You don't yeah. have to. But it's it's indicative of the kind of bullshit artists that we have that are reading off the news that he didn't like that version. He wanted to jazz it up. He wanted to make a little bit better. Yeah. My life was in danger for the news. Yeah. But it is, as we started this conversation, talking about how un- unreliable memory is. Yes. Right? And, very much and, so. Milan Kundera said, memory is not the opposite of forgetting. It's a way of forgetting, uh, right? Because we do. We remember things, things you know, based on emotions. And, mm-hmm. and over time, it changes. And, and especially a story like that. I know a guy who's a compulsive liar. I mean, within 15 minutes of meeting this guy, he told me he had trained with the SEALs. He had played semi-professional basketball in Europe. And he owned this amazing apartment that we were in that I knew he didn't own. His boss owned, who was this billionaire guy. And he was the private uh, pilot of this billionaire guy, this friend of mine, right? And so I knew this guy was full of shit. But I also knew he flies a fucking Learjet for a living. He's like on standby to fly this guy wherever around the world. Like, dude, that's a good story yeah. in itself. You don't need to lie, you know? Yeah. The guy who's working at Starbucks, okay, I, you make up some shit. Why not? You know? Gets you through the night. But you're a fucking pilot? Like, I knew a dude chill, who was dude. a successful comedian and a multimillionaire and was, would do really well, but he would be, he's a compulsive liar. Right. If you started talking to him about something that you do, 
uniquely, he would also do it. Uh, you know, yeah. like if you, you talk to him about, you know, whatever, going to the jungle and you know, researching ants, he, he would tell you about his time. Yeah, ants. Always a little better than your story, oh, right? Yeah. He smoked cigarettes and he would tell me about his uh, kickboxing experiences with world champions. <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, ballsy, yeah. though. Like to get into your yeah. realm, right? Oh, it was ridiculous. It, it's funny. That's that's risk, high risk. Well, he was crazy. Complete. He still is completely crazy. But he's really talented too, which is interesting. Yeah. Like he's a really good comic. So it's like it's. I can't give his name away, folks. I'm yeah. so sorry. So maybe he maybe, maybe, maybe he wants, maybe he likes the thrill, like that. Maybe you're going to call him out. Nope, I don't think so. There's no masochistic. Nope. 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 Just. Ego and alcohol and a bunch of craziness, but smoking cigarettes telling me about how he's just sparring eight rounds with a world champion, which isn't totally impossible. I had this guy in Joe Schilling recently. He's one of the best kickboxers in the world, and he admitted on the podcast he smokes cigarettes on a regular basis. Like, it's fucking crazy. But he's also, outside of that, very dedicated as an athlete. It's just right. ridiculous that he smokes yeah. cigarettes in an endurance sport. But he's a bad motherfucker. I mean, like, bona fide, legit, yeah. trains all day. This guy wasn't training. This guy's drinking all the time. He's like, right. I know he wasn't kickboxing. Yeah. Like, he's nuts. Like, it's just, but he almost can't help himself. He has to just, he starts talking and it just comes out and then he gets away. <laughs> There's a weird craziness. I, I remember meeting a guy once at a wine tasting uh, who told me he was a demigod. What does that mean? Uh, well, that's what I asked. Like, what does that mean? It, well, it means I'm, I'm I'm half human. My father was human. My mother was from, <laughs> and he tells like some some Latin word for a star system somewhere, and uh, and he said like again within 15 minutes he said uh, that uh, he was the highest paid artist in the world because he had designed the that atlas uh, thing in front of Rockefeller Center which was the highest, the most expensive piece of art and he would ever, like, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was fascinated. And the guy was a super good-looking dude. Like, he had, like, a little beard and a bit, he was big and dark. You know, he looked like Satan, like the <laughs> Mephistopheles kind of thing, you know? And I thought he was bullshitting me. I thought that my friend had, like, put him up to it because I was high and I was just like what? so you thought he was just acting like he was just being I, silly I thought he was goofing you right. know and that after a few minutes he'd break character and we'd all get a good laugh out of it and I even called my friend I was like hey Dave come over here I'm talking to the devil here he's got some great stories <laughs> <laughs> and then Cassie was there and then she came and he and he got into her and he started trying to impress her and telling her all these stories. And she's a psychiatrist, right? She sees bullshit like before the rest of us even know it's coming, you know? It was very funny, like the whole interaction. Wow. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a form of insanity, you yeah. know. Like people have to scratch that itch. I don't know. And they kind of keep moving. Those people almost by nature have to keep moving because eventually they leave a mess behind them. Their the lives implode. Yeah, you know, the, the lies come down and cave in on them, and then they got to find some new person. to, yeah. to sucker in, and that does happen. You know, you see that. You see people drifting from one group of people to the other group of people, and. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird when you meet someone who's just obviously full of shit and lying through their teeth <laughs> as they're talking. It's, it's a very strange thing. Like, do you know that I know? And you're just going to, like, hope that I don't call you on it? Because you've seen that or before, too, right? Or you want me to. Yeah. Mm. I, I wonder I about to. that, too. Like, mm. some people... Well, again, you know, the, uh, my wife's a psychiatrist. She she's dealt with all this kind of stuff, and, like, and she laughs. She just cracks up when she, she sees, sees it. Because she, sees, she it. sees it immediately, and just like her way of dealing with insanity is laughter. And she works with uh, well, she's worked with all sorts of people, but her sort of specialization is 
loony bit, like uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of scenes, right? I, I remember going in with her the first time I, I visited her at work. She was uh, running a mental hospital with like double doors and bars over the windows. These criminally insane people who had wow. killed their kids and, Oof. you know, like crazy shit, right? And we went in there. I wasn't prepared, man. We went in and it was just like lunatics. And there was this woman, like must have been in her mid-50s, lying on her back in a little nightgown, no underwear, with her like arms and legs, you know, like a crab, doing a crab thing. And we walk in, it's like this, you know, pussy and the whole scene just scared the shit out of me. Ugh. And and uh, Casilda just started laughing. Like, you crazy old lady, what are you doing? Get up from there. She just like laughs. And the thing that I didn't understand until I, I hung out with her is that people who are psychotic know they're psychotic. Oh. And so they kind of know how ridiculous they are. And as a doctor, when she laughs, she laughs in such a loving, accepting, I get you kind of way that it creates this instant rapport and they start laughing. Oh, so she and, like relieves a little tension. Right. Like it's all, okay, I know you're just another crazy person. I deal with you all the time. I and mean, come on. It's, it's kind of like how, you know, like a, a gynecologist, I imagine, would have to sort of be so laid back that you kind of, you know, okay, he's seen a million pussies. At this, right. You know, like it relaxes you in a way, you know. Hmm. And I think she does that with, uh, with crazy people. Yeah. It's normal people who make her really uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine if you were a gynecologist and you were super nervous about seeing someone's pussy. <laughs> They'd be, okay, I guess we're about to do it. <laughs> Hold on. Throw some water on my face. Let me have a little Ooh, more wine. Okay, Just take another your panties drink. off. Oh, Jesus, it's happening. It's happening. All right, let's see what you got wrong down there. All right, I'm going to look. I'm going to look. I'm looking. I'm looking. Going to use a mirror. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, it's, like it's a fucking vampire. It's Medusa. You can't look. Look it in the eyes. Uh, yeah. So if you had to have a job, like a normal job, what job would you be good at? Or what, what would oh, you want to do? Not a gynecologist, I imagine. Uh, outside of comedy, I would probably be a martial arts instructor. Right. I enjoy doing that. Yeah. You like teaching? Yeah, I enjoy teaching. I'll bet you're good with kids, I'll bet. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I used to teach kids class. I taught a lot of kids. I yeah. taught kids uh, up. I taught several kids from white belt all the way up to uh, higher belts. Like I don't think I taught anybody up to black belt, but I got pretty close because it takes quite a few years to achieve black belt. So for most of them, they, it is very rare that they make it to that far. Like they they'll learn some lessons along the way and it'll help them, you know, in life. But yeah. to achieve that level of of, a, of ability is a lot of commitment. So most of them didn't make it. It's right. like maybe one out of a thousand ever make it to black belt. Really? Probably in a good school, maybe. A, I mean, might be one out of five hundred or six hundred, but it's yeah, whatever. It's, it's close to a yeah. thousand, whatever it is. It's it's not one percent by any stretch of the imagination. It's probably at a good estimate is one tenth of one percent. Right. You know. So, but yeah, I, but I, I, enjoy I mean, it. you, I imagine you'd be really good in that kind of an environment, not just martial arts, but kids in general, because there's like a sort of an immediate respect 
You know, like you're, you know, you look like a badass. So it's like, oh, let, take that guy seriously. Well, I like kids. That's yeah, one of the and, reasons and you, why. And you're amenable. You're open to them. Well, yeah. I, I also, I, I'm a big take in strays sort of guy. Like right. I've always taken in stray dogs and cats. And, yeah, I've been following people. your Instagram. Lots of good cat shots in there recently. <laughs> I got a new kitten. I love but cats, man. I do too. They're, uh, they're fun. They're fun to have around. They don't require your constant attention, too. You know, they've they, got dignity. They got their own life, man. And especially <laughs> the key, which, which you obviously understand understand is have multiple cats yeah don't have one cat because then you're gonna have the neurotic freaked out cat pissing mm-hmm. in your bed but you have it the difference between no cat and a cat is significant the difference between one cat and two cats is negligible yeah right so, as far as like the the toll on you. whatever yeah. yeah i mean so get a few cats if you're gonna get a cat and so they have each other when you're not around yeah you know yeah i got three of them they're yeah all, that's what we had three plan you know I- interesting enough um, teaching was one of the things that really helped me on Fear Factor, which Fear Factor seems like it's such a stupid show, and it was kind of dumb. But um, there was some people that were like really freaked out and didn't know how to deal with like the stress of competition. Right, and I was so used to it. I was so used to not just not just teaching, but coaching. Like even when I retired, uh, my friend Dimitri was uh, fighting in this big national tournament and I was in his corner for like, and I, and I pumped him up like during, it was like one of his best performances ever. Like I'm good at getting inside of people's heads, especially people that I know and telling them what they need to hear mm. to get them to go out there and fire them the fuck up, you know, and telling them like what you're really good at, man, you can do this. And it's all about not having any doubt. It's all about knowing how to stay intense and focused and, 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 and go out there and do what needs to be done and, and giving them this sort of technical advice as well as like this emotional pick me up yeah like some some people have like a knack for that and i developed it by teaching kids right because kids are always freaked out man i took a lot of kids to tournaments and you know they'd be fighting other little kids and most likely they wouldn't get hurt but you know when you got a little seven-year-old in front of you and you're putting pads on his head to protect him from kicks and you're like listen you, you just got to stay focused and don't be afraid all you need to think about is what you're doing. Don't think about what happens if it goes wrong. Never think of that. Always think about what are you trying to do. And if things go wrong, reset and think about it again. What is my objective? What am I trying to do? Stay defensive. Keep moving. Never stand in one place at one. You know, never stand put. Always, always keep fainting. Always keep the opponent guessing. And I'd go over all the most important things to them and then pump them up and tell you, you can do this. When you get through this, you're going to feel so good. I know you mm. feel terrible now, but as terrible as you feel now, when it's over, you're going to feel so good. Yeah. And when they would do it and they would compete, even if they would lose, they'd be so relieved. I'm like, see, now you feel good. <laughs> and this, yeah. this, this experience, this harrowing, stressful experience can give birth to this new appreciation of peace. Right. It's, you know. it's the yin-yang again, right, yeah, we were exactly. talking about earlier. Exactly. I read a book recently, a fascinating book called uh, Paradise Made in Hell, uh, Rebecca Solnit, and it's about uh, disaster sociology, right? So it's studying people's behaviors in, uh, behavior in disasters, oh. right? And so th- it's fascinating because the idea we have is like that's when people get really crazy and they you loot and pillage and, you know, oh, now I can rape and nobody will catch me and there are no cops. <laughs> And in fact, what happens is the opposite, that that's when people are most generous, most kind. They form communities. They meet the neighbors they never said a fucking word to for 10 years. They're like taking care of each other. And people and it it sort of relates to war, too. You know, people look back on it and they say, yeah, there was a lot of horrible shit. People were dying. Stuff was happening. But I remember it as the best time in my life. 
And the the main guy, there's this really moving passage where this guy who sort of started the the field, who's no hippie, he you know teaches at Nebraska or something. He's like very straight up scientist, but he said he said the best way to think about disasters is not as a disaster, but as relief from the disaster that is normal life. <laughs> because a normal life, we're all isolated, oh, we're all suffering God. alone. And he's like, man, when the shit hits the fan, that's when things get really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's no escaping the fact that it's finite when you're watching people die around you. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, it's like you were saying about, you know, you need the pain to enjoy the pleasure. You need hunger to enjoy the food. You need, you know, loneliness to enjoy companionship. You, there is no light without dark. There really know? isn't. Right. And I think people uh, one of the things that people miss in their lives that leads people to become very stagnant and and disappointed in, in their existence is that there's no thrills. You know, I think that's what right. leads people to, um, you know, to get divorced or to get to become drug addicts or to, to be self-destructive. It's almost like people need thrills. And when you get stuck in a really secure job mm. where you know, all right, Chris Ryan, for the next 40 hours, you know, you're going to be stuck in this spot or, you know, eight hours a day for the next, you know, seven days, yeah. five days, whatever it is. You're going to be stuck in this spot and you're going to be at this desk and you're going to be dealing with all these cases that come your way and you're going to have to file them. And then you're going to have to write a report and it's going to suck. And you're going to just be lumped in to this group of people that are all doing the same thing. And you're going to do it every week. And at the end of the week, you know, when, when the, the day's done, then you can go home and you can relax. But there's going to be no thrills. The, the, th the biggest thrill would be merging onto the highway. Oh, my God, here we go. Like, other than that, there's nothing. There's yeah. no ups. It's all just steady and normal. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have so much road rage and mm -hmm. stress. And uh, there's no real experience. Yeah, there's no, they're not flushing out. I often say in Spanish, the word aislar means both to insulate and to isolate. Mm. So we you know, and this gets into this whole book I'm writing, like civilization is largely uh, an attempt to insulate ourselves from uh, danger, from strangers, from any sort of uh, predators, you know, from anything that could be a danger to us. We try to insulate ourselves from it. And then at the end, we're isolated, right? Because we're surrounded by this margin, this moat that protects us. From what? From from life, mm. right? From the thing that makes you feel alive. Right. Like, okay, you want to be completely safe? You know, get inside this coffin, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, take some anesthetics and, and you won't feel a goddamn thing. But how's that different from being dead? Yeah. It seems like we're all doing our part in this existence and we're we're moving past what we used to be from single-celled organisms to higher primates to some weird thing right now that's a combination of conscious being and uh, and physical animal and someone like duncan someone like duncan yeah and we're moving in this sort of advancing direction and it's not it's it's not done you know yeah, we're we're in, done. yeah we're a part of a great process and what the stage that you and I are in, they're going to look back at us and laugh the way we look back at Isaac Newton wearing a powdered wig or, you know, any of the weirdos that, you know, figured out all sorts of incredible things back in history, but also believed a bunch of stupid shit as well. Like you, you look back at Copernicus and the things that he discovered and it's unbelievable and amazing. But today it's like, duh, like everybody yeah. already knows that, you know, like yeah. the, look at the life that you live. Like imagine being Darwin and trying to express these ideas that you 
you've formulated over the course of your your life's work to a bunch of Christian scientists, which is what he was dealing with. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. If you go back and think about it today, like his challenges of this idea of this monotheistic world that that the scientists pretty much universally existed in at that time and, and, and tries to push forth these crazy theories that he's coming up with uniquely on his own. I mean, the, 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 the resistance that he must have experienced to something that today is instantaneously accepted by everyone that's in, in academia, in, in, in science, I mean, all, almost across the board, yeah. his ideas are, are accepted. So we look back at those times and we go, God, they're fucking so stupid back then. Well, they're going to do that to us. Sure. You know? And it's not going to be that long. I mean, with Darwin, you're talking about a few hundred years. With us, it's going to be a few decades. And then a few decades. everything goes faster yeah, it's now. it's faster yeah. and faster yeah. and faster. And we're we're in the middle of this. Yeah. We're in the middle of this weird process of human beings changing and becoming more aware of all the flaws and the folly in our civilization and our existence and all the shit we're fighting for today. All the protests like Black Lives Matter and you know people fighting for rights of you know everyone across the board from women to gays to this to that. Like what we're doing is we're trying to patch up the holes in this crazy system with with agitation and anger and loud voices. And, you know, social media campaigns and it's essentially all just trying to make this thing into a more coherent, more advanced version of what it is now. And then that in turn will find the inherent problems in its existence and it will move just like the monkeys from, you know, 200,000 years ago that became human beings. We're fighting off all these different creatures and realize like, yeah, we got to make houses. This is bullshit. Like this, (laughs) this fucking living in trees is bullshit. The cats climb trees man yeah my fucking tired of my baby's getting eaten like let's figure out spears <laughs> and snakes you know yeah. you know let's let's figure a way to make a better situation yeah. and i think we're in the middle of that man i think we just like like all things you take it for granted that you're in the middle of it if you look back on your childhood you know and today you look back and you go wow when i was 10 i was doing this and i was doing that but when you were 10 you were just in the middle of it mm. you know you, you look back at how much progress has taken place in your own life as a microcosm to your existence you know, our, all of our existence, your your own individual memories and your own individual experiences, they you're in the middle of it. You know, thinking about being what well, we're as civilization, we're in the middle of this babyhood. We're in the middle of this adolescence, whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. You know, and we're moving into some new place. Yeah. And it's arrogant, but very common for people to think we're at the end of it. Like this is the cutting edge. Yeah. It, it is the edge, but it's not the end. It's not perfection. It's right. like, yeah, it's always... Always in in process. Always in process, but amazing to think that right now we are at the pinnacle of human knowledge. We are at the peak, the tip of the spear as far as like everything that people have learned and figured out up until now. We have this database we've accumulated from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of records. And then, you know, after that, it gets a little sketchy. You go a few thousand years, things get real weird in different languages. Things get even weirder and it gets more vague and more strange and more difficult to decipher. But all that data that we've accumulated and the access to it that we have today, unprecedented Unprecedented as far as we know and people it's amazing it's amazing to be at that time where you have a question you just like with a psychology psychopathy thing we just bang we just google it and we didn't have to go to a library we didn't have to order a book we didn't have to go to a bookstore or go to a class you just instantaneously get that information and I think that that is accelerating us in a way that we can't even comprehend yeah no doubt
Yeah, I think we're all experiencing it in a way that's, it seems so normal because everyone has a phone, you know? Well, let me, let me just check my my phone and see. Let me yeah. just call my friend who's nowhere near me. And, you know, this affects, getting back to the earlier thing about aging, right? Like, I this affects the experience of aging because more has changed in our lifetimes because it's always accelerating. Yeah. That... Like, I remember the first computer I interacted with, right? It was, I was in my late 20s working in the Diamond District in New York, and one of my jobs was to back up the disks in this computer. The computer was the size of a big refrigerator, and the disks were like, you know, double the circumference of, a, of an album. And they were these massive things, and they were probably like 50 megabytes each or something, you know? If that, right? If that, right. I mean, and I probably got a thousand times the computing power in my pocket right now. It's just easily like insane. Maybe even more than a thousand. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how it works. Yeah. Hey, I got to roll. Get out of here, man. I, yeah. It's you got always things to do. Go to Portland. I, 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 I'm going to see you this weekend. I'm tempted to like miss the plane. This When's is your so much fun. Uh, well, it's not the plane. It's the rental car. Oh, okay. They're going to rate me if I'm late. We'll hang out this weekend, and we're, we're promising to do one with you, me, and Duncan again. We're going to yeah, figure it out. I know. We've been I, getting tweets. Everybody's busy, folks. <laughs> Shit happens. Um, but we'll we'll get it together. We'll get it together. But well, thank you, brother. You Appreciate guys pick it. a date. I'll fly down for and it for you sure. can you can follow Chris on Twitter. It's uh, Is it Chris Ryan, Ph.D.? Yeah. Or it's Christopher Ryan. Chris, Chris Ryan? Ryan. Chris PhD. Ryan. Chris Ryan, PhD. Uh, the one book that you can buy that he has is Sex at Dawn. Fantastic book. Guaranteed to piss off your wife. Leave that shit around. What are you reading? Getting these fucking ideas out of your head. <laughs> uh, Chris Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it, man. Thank it was you. a lot of fun. Yeah. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Go to ziprecruiter.com forward slash Rogan. To get to try ZipRecruiter for free and get 30% off your first traffic boost. That's ziprecruiter.com forward slash Rogan. Thanks also to Smart Things. Go to smartthings.com forward slash Rogan to get 10% off any Smart Things home security or solutions kit. That's smartthings.com forward slash Rogan. And finally, last but not least, we are brought to you by Onnit.com. That is O N N I T, the total human optimization website. And uh, to use the code word Rogan, if you use the code word Rogan, it will save you 10% off any and all supplements. All right, my friends, thanks for tuning in. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Much love. Big kiss. Mwah.